my friend says caffeine's a drug. I said, oh, tell your friend, fuck you. I want to be a buddy with Just a little breakfast. Hello and welcome to Breakfast Punks, a podcast about weird shit, DIY punk and trashy movies. Brought to you by Sham City Roasters and Deadbeat Donuts. From Hastings, I'm Dave. And I'm Siobhan and welcome to episode 34. In this week's episode we're talking about New York hardcore scene and the film Surf Nazis Must Die from 1987. We're going to kick off with the song. Uh, If you listened to our last episode, all about the Hopeless Records sample I hopelessly devoted to you... You'll know that we uh, swooned <laughs> about a certain band called the Bowl Weevils. We did do a big swoon. And we've had rather a nice week because uh, Daryl from the Bowl Weevils contacted us and Yee. said he really enjoyed the episode and told us, uh, because I made some sort of smarmy comment <laughs> about how they hadn't responded to me on Facebook, <laughs> told us we could go ahead and play their song. So we're going to play their song. <laughs> Thank um, you. <laughs> I expected to completely fanboy out about that, but I think I dealt with that rather well. You have dealt uh, with So that this well. is a song by the Bull Weevils, who are from Chicago. Uh, it was released last year. We mentioned it on the last episode. But it is due out on their forthcoming album, which is being recorded at the end of this month. And they're hoping to have it out before the end of the year. The song is called Liniment and Tonic. It's fucking brilliant. And this is the Bull Weevils. <laughs> Thursday. Breaking news is part of this job. You are fake news. News. This is 
Breaking news, Siobhan. Yes? This slimy, turd-like, magnetic robot could <laughs> grab things from inside your body. <laughs> what? Says a Chinese university. A slime... <laughs> a slimy turd robot. A slime okay. turd robot can move around... It is controlled by magnets. Oh, no. Inside you. Move around inside you. Yeah, it can surround... This actually covers so many different aspects of things that we enjoy on this podcast. I don't know. I don't feel like I'm enjoying anything right now. The idea of the slimy turd robot is that you can pop it up yourself (laughs) and it can retrieve things that you've previously popped up yourself. Oh, well, like that, um, the jar that we, someone put into like their urethra from last so week. So many different things that we've like, had. Oh, People gosh. have put all sorts. Of, didn't someone swallow a mobile phone? What? Um, <laughs> I think that was in China too. Um, oh, this God. slime, it can move around, controlled by magnets. It surrounds things in the shape of either a C or an O. It picks them up and then you can move it out of the body using magnets, which I imagine would hurt like fuck. <laughs> Depending on what it is that oh, it's got. Imagine a little slime turd robot moving around inside you, wriggling around trying to get your, your glass out of yourself. Your glass out of your urethra. Yeah, <laughs> out of your urethra. Well, there is oh, one dear. problem. Um, at the moment, it's far too toxic to actually use inside <laughs> the human body. This poo thing does look uh, disgusting. Like a poo? It looks like a kind of like if your poo was made of tar. Like it's jet black. Yeah, like a Guinness poo. Isn't it a Guinness poo? Uh, it looks like well, if you had a poo that was actually this colour, you, you should definitely just go and we, put yourself down. We nursed someone that used to go into a bedpan that had poos that were quite black. Do you remember oh, that? Oh, do you know what? They're about that colour, but that oh. doesn't that doesn't help that doesn't <laughs> help the That helps no one else. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, but the interesting thing is, the researcher revealed the slime behaves quite differently according to how you approach it. When, <laughs> when you touch it very quickly, it behaves like a solid. And when you touch it gently and slowly, it behaves like a liquid. So if you correct, like cornflour. Cornflour does this. It's not very exciting. Yeah, I suppose so. I mean, like it's, a poly- sm- it's made of polyvinyl alcohol, borax <laughs> and particles of neodymium. So if... Magnet. <laughs> Hang on, no particles of a neodymium. I can't say like it. Like a dinosaur. Yeah. Um, <laughs> so if you if you caress it, it turns to a mush. Okay, so weird. Intrigued. The next thing on this article is very much like mixing water with cornstarch. Told you. Oh, that's exactly what you said. <laughs> cornstarch pellet. Don't know what the bother with this stuff for. <laughs> oh, but dear. it could be used inside the human body, inside the digestive tract. They're trying to make it less toxic. Mm-hmm. They're gonna. Uh, produce a protective layer that would deter the toxic particles from interacting with the human body. So it would actually still be toxic. It would um, just be under something that wasn't toxic. <laughs> Indeed, it would be like wearing a mask. <laughs> so therefore you wouldn't get COVID. Uh, safety would also strongly depend on how long you would keep them inside of your body. Oh, God. What if you can get it back out and then the nice layer gets removed and then you just have this toxic poo inside I, you? I think you have to keep putting bigger toxic black turds inside your body. To go retrieve the previous? Re- yeah, and just keep pulling them out. <laughs> That's the only way. It is the only way. Well, let's hope that we never have to... Well, I don't know. I'm quite intrigued. Is it? Does it crawl inside? Do you have to put it inside you? Or can you it's can magnets. The ma- can the magnets lure themselves so they can crawl up inside? Well, I, I think, don't know what's I, worse. I imagine that you probably have to start by popping it up yourself. You and don't then just the present magnets, yourself no, in front and of And then the... they do the rest of it with magnets <laughs> from afar. It just walks in. <laughs> no. In the shape of a C or an O. <laughs> Depending on the shape of your orifice. <laughs> no, but it walks in like a... Or it goes in like a pellet. It hasn't got legs, Siobhan. It's just a turd. 
<laughs> but it goes in the shape of a poo. I think it's that's the idea for the yeah. for ease of travel, and then when it gets to its but the well, uh, item, it, um, it gets around it, envelopes around from it. From what I can make out from what what it says, it goes in the shape of a C. What? So I think that's going to be quite painful, but better than the shape of an O. Can't it just go in the shape of a poo? Well, the picture looks like it does go. It looks a little bit like a butt plug. Oh. The shape that they've given. <laughs> Well, this is all very delightful. <laughs> My next news story does have the term mutant in the title, so we're going on a similar vein, but uh, very much... Is it a slimy mutant? No, it's far more uh, enjoyable and delicious, I would go as far as to say. <laughs> Dad finds mutant five-inch crisp in his cheese and onion Aldi snack. <laughs> this has made the news. Michael Lanford thought that he was dreaming when he pulled out his massive snack this <laughs> The gigantic potato-based snack measures in at six inches, although it does say five inches yeah, in the title. A, they, yeah. But it is not, by anywhere, a stretch of the imagination, a world record. Oh. Loads of people keep pulling out these six-inch snacks out of their bags. How um, big is it? Hang on. Is it, oh, I suppose it's from a family-sized bag of crisps. No, it's just from, a, it's from an Aldi packet of crisps. Just a normal packet of crisps but they're not six inches themselves are they yeah look at that look it was well i can't, I can't look can't we're on the it, radio it was in a multi-pack bag of snack right crisps mm. which was about the size of the packet himself and he picked it up and he thought oh, there's something weird in there and uh, it was a, a crisp the size of the packet mm. but he's not alone tons of people have been finding six inch crisps so one why is it in the news two <laughs> It's already been in the news before. Tons of people find these size crisps. It's not important. Another man claims to have found a crisp in pretty much the same size in another packet of crisps in Morrison's. Oh. But do you want to know what the record uh, for a biggest crisp in the world is? Was it a crisp that was specifically made to break a record or was it just did it just happen to come Fra- out of a packet? Yeah, frustratingly, it was a specially created crisp. Well, potatoes are... Pe- I mean, you can get very big potatoes, but surely... How do they make crisps? A crisp isn't like you don't mash the potato and then well, for reform some you do, it. some you do like a hula hoop. A hula yeah. hoop is a reformed potato. I but have no idea, but I'm going to say uh, three meters. <laughs> I don't think so. No, <laughs> twenty-five inches by fourteen inches, and it was made by a team of US-based food engineers in 1991. So ages ago. Mm. I'd love to have eaten a crisp that size. Crisps are my favorite, probably my favorite food. I think a big crisp would be a nightmare to eat, wouldn't it? Isn't it better to have loads of small crisps? Oh, definitely better to have loads of small crisps. But imagine if you had like a dinner a dinner plate sized crisp and you just munched at it. But as soon as you bite, like I find with a big crisp, a crisp that you know you get them sometimes they're slightly too big for the mouth. Slightly too big for the mouth. And if as soon as would you a, try, would them, a six inch crisp be slightly too big for your mouth? Uh, well, I wouldn't like to say. <laughs> Um, but as soon as you bite, if you want it, let's, for example, say yeah. you've got a crisp that you want to eat in four, right? If you bite it once with an idea of them being able to bite uh, it a couple more times, there's no way that works because it, it just it disintegrates, it cracks. I mean, this was a ridged crisp. Is it oh, sturdier? I feel like it's structural integrity. You'd have to go better. from the side and you'd, side? you'd, yeah, because you'd take it off at the ridge. Oh, you'd lengthwise. break it ribbed wise. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Knew you'd have an answer for that. <laughs> Knew you'd have an answer for that. Well, so Dorset Man, doctor. your crisp wasn't very big, but I did enjoy seeing it. Well, thank you for getting out your massive snack. <laughs> <laughs> well, talking about massive snacks, well, massive amounts of snacks. Ooh, I love a massive amount of snack. We still haven't. Done, by the way, guys, if you're waiting for us to do the chicken nugget challenge, we are going to. 
<laughs> Sorry, just realised we promised a chicken nugget challenge and we haven't done it yet, but we are going to, don't worry, at some point. We could pretend to everybody that we have done it and it's behind our Patreon paywall. Oh, true. And the Patreons we... might, you know, call us out on that. Yeah, I think they are going to. Greg Superfan, who has eaten 10,000 sausage rolls, uses annual leave to spend £300 a month. What? Wait a minute, I don't understand. A Greg Supervan, who reckons she's scoffed more than 10,000 sausage rolls in her life, is touring every single branch of the bakery in the UK to find her favourite. Megan Topping, 27, began her mission during the first lockdown, so not even that long ago, after being furloughed from her job as a bartender. With extra time on her hands, she came up with the idea to visit 2,078 stores up and down the country in a project that would see her cover 415 miles. I mean, in a lot of ways, this is a very minor aim. <laughs> but anyway, <laughs> uh, Megan from Middleton in Greater Manchester says that she's taken on an enormous challenge. Oh. Again, not really an enormous challenge, just to cover 415 miles. I mean, without well, being a band, a lot having been in a band though. for most of my life, 415 miles. That's true. No, but that big of a It's more deal. than nearly 3,000 sausage rolls she's going to have to eat along the way. Yeah, true. Guess it's that. <laughs> uh, she's take, so she's taken on the enormous challenge and is worried it could take her years to complete. Oh. She says, I would say that I am completely and utterly Greg's mad. I go almost every day and have done for years. People think this is a bit of a joke, but genuinely, Greg's has been important throughout my life and I'm so grateful it exists. It sounds crazy, but even if I'm travelling, the first thing I look for is a Greg's. Oh. Which can't be very difficult. It's, again, extremely minor aims, this woman has yeah, in her life. Yeah, they're at every service station now exactly, as well. When I, exactly. Strangely, Megan is extremely thin and doesn't really look unwell. Oh, uh, so it's an eating disorder of the other way. You know, I don't want to make any yeah. comment on that, but you already have. She's taken annual leave uh, from work to aid her progress in reaching her goal. And during lockdown, Megan, who spends £300 a month in Greg's, saved up £1,000 to buy a new car, which she's since called the Gregsmobile. Oh. <laughs> so she's a lot of fun. This will help her to make her way around the UK. I mean, Jesus. I, I suppose if she didn't have a car, then getting a car would help her. When she visits the one in Hastings, can she let us know? <laughs> what, do you want to beat her up? No. I mean, it did sound like I might. I mean, we know someone who works in the Hastings, Greg. She lives downstairs. That's a very good Get point. her a good deal. Save us some money on that, uh, however many thousands of pounds she has to spend on Greg's a year. I don't think our downstairs neighbour is going to give some random girl from Manchester a good deal because we ask her to because we talked about her on a podcast that she doesn't even know exists. <laughs> true. <laughs> true. She doesn't even like it when we turn a fan on, so it's not going to go well. I couldn't be more excited. I work a lot and I wanted to do something fun with my life so oh. I thought sod it why not I think it will take a few years at least but I'm game um, she describes uh, her passion for Greg's sausage rolls and she's had this since she was 10 years old I didn't know Greg's existed 17 years yeah, ago yeah they bought out loads of things like uh, in Norwich it was a baker's dozen and they, and they bought it out oh, so, oh, thanks a little bit of background knowledge there, there. Go. I remember some things <laughs> she used to get it on the way to school she's loved it her whole life she thinks it's better than any other bakery if I could but, speak to the Greg's family I would just like to thank them as their bakes have been such a big part of my life I just appreciate them so much if I could be so bold as to say that those sausage rolls are all made in the same place. So she's yeah. travelling to yeah. all these 2,000-odd places to eat the very same one. Because they literally, they're just, it's just regenerated people in their do, own... Do people do warm them up in their own respective ovens? 
Yeah, but like they're made in one factory somewhere. Yeah, of you course. can buy them in Iceland, love. You don't yeah. need to go anywhere. Yeah. If you've got a good oven at home, just just pa- just pop them in. Uh, the way she stays so slim, by the way, Siobhan, is that even though you're suggesting them, that she, she voms these back up again. No, that wasn't what I was suggesting. That <laughs> she goes for walks with her cocker spaniel Chino, and also her job as a bartender keeps her on her feet. Mm. <laughs> her usual daily order two sausage rolls, one vegan sausage roll, a box of donuts, and a steak bake. Every day! Every day. And if she wants to treat herself, she'll also have a ham and cheese baguette. <laughs> She says the sausage roll is the best thing Greg's done has done hands down. I love it fresh out of the oven. Why did so she get again, the big... sorry, excuse me, Siobhan, fresh out of the oven, <sighs> freshly baked by her loving Greg's people. I've been to Greg's and sometimes it ain't fresh out of the oven. Sometimes it's been there all day. The service stations are just constantly being reheated for hours. Yeah, put out at seven in the morning and you get it at whatever time you get there. <laughs> Why did she get the vegan one? Why is she stealing from... You know, she doesn't need isn't that. Isn't that a good thing? Wouldn't it be... Isn't it good... As you, as a vegan, should surely be happy that she's she's one-third of her sausage roll intake is vegan. I just felt... <laughs> Not just, the whole thing. You've already got me. two. Well, I think it's a good thing. I think it she's is. doing... I think she's doing... So, if she's having that every day, she's saving yeah, yeah, yeah. More, a lot of animals. But she also... Just eat two sausage rolls, not three, and make one of them vegan. I just don't understand why she eats three sausage rolls at a steak baker day. Anyway, we've covered a few people like this on the podcast. I don't know on what episode, so I'm not going to be able to direct you back, but I remember there was a man that was eating every chip. Oh, true. Uh, from a Weatherspoon. Well, he was saving them. Putting he them in was a saving folder. a chip in a folder. It doesn't look like she's been keeping her Greg sausage rolls in any sort of uh, <laughs> photo album or anything. <laughs> Yeah, I just think that she needs to get a fucking life. I love that she's just like, God, I really wanted to do something with my life and this is where I've ended up. Yeah. But I don't know if you've achieved it yet. <laughs> uh, well, good luck to you. everyone. I'm en- I enjoy people who decide to do something a bit ridiculous and just go at it. So whilst I think it's stupid, go I at think it. it's good to pick something that's ridiculous but also somewhat worth something. Also, how much oh. do you want to bet? As a bartender, yeah. she works in Weatherspoons. I 100% believe No she question, is Not in a rude way. <laughs> and also, yes, you would you would be rushed off your feet. Those places are Oh, massive. mate, I'm not, and sorry. And table service I, now, isn't it? I have no doubt that she is rushed off her feet. Yeah. I don't mean to you've suggest otherwise. You've got to sling otherwise. the chips out. You've got, you've got people ordering on the app now. So you've got you've to walk got to their to tables. deal with all those fucking Weatherspoons humans. Yeah. Telling you and how good Brexit is. They're in old cinemas. So you've Being got mildly racist. Oh yeah, your heart get your heart will go up. All the all the shouting you got to do. Oh god! I'll tell you what would calm her down. Mm. But not if you can't drugs, buy, hard drugs. Getting there. Oh. It's a food, and there's also drugs. Mike Tyson cannot sell ear shaped cannabis gummies in Colorado. <laughs> this is a uh, lovely news story. Uh, the state law prohibits marijuana edibles from being shaped like humans, animals, fruit, or other images that could attract children. Um, with an ear attached to... Oh, my God, I've just realised yeah. why he's selling them. So, I... Obviously, I'm not that alarmed that he can't sell it in Colorado. That's not really the thing here. I'm intrigued of what he's selling. So, Mike Tyson has an edibles company, apparently, called Tyson 2.0. And he has these little edibles and they're, they're shaped like ears. Because he bit someone's ear to, off. Yeah, 1997, when he chopped, he chomped someone's ear off in a fight... And now he's making money off of it. I think it's awful. He's making money off of it. He's had this business since 2016. He earns apparently 653,000. Nope. 653,000. <laughs> I feel like you're on your own. I tell you what. 
<laughs> more than $653,000 per month Christ. off of his edibles business. That's probably a, a bit of a small drop in a big pond for Mike Tyson, though, isn't it? I mean, he must have so much money. Yeah, maybe, but that's fucking insane. But, yeah, ear-shaped edibles, they are red... <laughs> <laughs> little chomped off ears so he's going to get round it by reshaping them into teas for Tyson so he can still sell them I wonder how the man who's eerie I can't remember who it was oh I can tell you bear with me it was Evander Holyfield yes I wonder how he feels I don't know if he's alive yeah, but I wonder sure. how he feels about his ear his ear being used by Mike Tyson as a as a drugs meal that's very strange yeah it's odd this is a thing in America because there's been a cannabis is uh, legal now, obviously, in I think almost every state or maybe yeah. not every, but a good chunk of it. And uh, there's a uh, that podcast last podcast on the left. They've started doing their own edibles. Oh, really? I think it's kind of like it's probably a little bit like coffee was about five years <laughs> ago. Everyone wanted their own coffee for a while. Now they all want to sell their own drugs. <laughs> oh, if we had an edible, what would it be shaped like? Uh, breakfast, a full English breakfast. A full English breakfast on a gummy. No, you'd have to make a massive one. It'd have to be the size <gasps> of that chip. Oh, no, it could be like, you know those gummy burgers that come in separate bits and you put it all together, or gummy pizzas? <laughs> yeah. It'd be like that. You'd have a gummy uh, breakfast and you put all the bits on that you want. Well, unfortunately, you our country is very far behind everybody else in this respect, and uh, <laughs> cannabis is still illegal. There you go. Oh, well. <laughs> Irish barista ends up in hospital after holding in farts around her boyfriend for two years. <laughs> Cara Clark was at work when she developed extreme stomach pain on Tuesday and was rushed to hospital. <laughs> the 19-year-old then learned she had an infection and would have to have her appendix removed before it burst, which she says was caused by her reluctance to break wind around her partner. Mm, okay. She's with her, been with her boyfriend for two years, claims that when he found out about it, he was dying with laughter, but it was a serious business. She's vowed to just let him out now. Uh, <clears throat> I'm pretty easy going with it. So I can't, I'm going to have to stop doing these fucking voices. I can't do an Irish either. I'm pretty easy going, other than the burps and farts. She says, this is wonderfully worded. I'm going to say that again. I'm pretty easy going, other than the burps and farts. I was at work on Tuesday, and I had this real extreme pain in my stomach. I went to the doctor in hysterics, and he referred me straight to the hospital. I was in so much pain, I couldn't hold in my tears. At hospital, I started blaming my boyfriend, because he, I do always hold my farts in around him. And we've been together for two years, and it's still the case. This lovely, lovely lunatic, who basically has just had appendicitis for... Who knows what reason <laughs> yeah. has just decided, you know what, I'm, that, now's the time. I'm going to tell him off because for some reason I'm holding in my farts and for so, I'm going to somehow blame him. Well, yes, yeah, so she was obviously told by medical professionals that, it, that she had got appendicitis as a result of holding in wind. So that means that when you go in for appendicitis, at some point they, they must ask you, do you regularly hold in your farts? Because... <laughs> You you get appendicitis for so many reasons. So for a doctor to have told her it's because you hold in farts, that sounds very odd. I mean, she might be confused, who knows, but she's gone straight to the Irish mirror, who apparently... (laughs) who actually have a specific uh, comment section, which they've set up for, do you have an embarrassing relationship story? (laughs) So she might have made all of this up, 
I don't really know. She's getting the papers. Um, she did post a video on TikTok. Oh, God. Telling off the boyfriend about oh. how he made... Well, he didn't make her by the sounds of it. She just chose to hold in her farts for two years. Yeah. Uh, the clip went viral with over 220,000 views. Sorry, 220,000 views. Oh, shut views up. At I... the time of writing. <laughs> I did not expect this response at all. I'd really only been having a crack with TikTok. Again, I've re- you really should say that in an Irish accent. <laughs> You can't. I, I only know one thing you try. can do in an Irish accent. No, and you can't gonna, say it. I'm right. not going to try. But the, <laughs> you know, obviously, I, what I question about this more than anything else, I'm not someone that farts in front of other people very much. No, I'm not only, very. I'm, I'm not against <laughs> it. I don't. Sleep. I don't really care. But you can go somewhere else and fart. Yeah. Do you know what I mean? There's no need to. She's not held in a fart for two years. <laughs> the boyfriend must have gone out at some point. She must have been able to go in the garden. Or something. The garden. I don't know. Go for a walk. Or just go in another room. Or go to Greg's. <laughs> fart in Greg's all you like. She probably keeps off the Greg's just trying not to fart. Go and fart in the other room if you've got a problem. I imagine farts in public are the least of this place's problems. Mm-hmm. This article is about UK's toughest pub where people got shot with crossbows and kicked sheep. What? <laughs> yeah, I know. I don't really understand it. But I'm bringing it up because... It's in an area where I wonder if people from up north who listen to this might be able to tell us about because it doesn't mm. exist anymore, but I am intrigued by it. Champs at your at gmail.com. Of course. Uh, you think you've been in some risky pubs before, but you might want to reassess that after you've learned about this old pub in Manchester that was once described as one of the toughest in the whole of Britain. It's gone now, but in its heyday, it was famous for firing crossbows at each other and booting farm animals. The pub used to be in the central Manchester area of Collyhurst and was called Billy Green's. Um, it shut in 2011... But it got a bit of a reputation back in the early 2000s. It was named rather aptly after a local boxer and pub landlord and garnered a reputation for being pretty dicey. It was featured on a show called The Toughest Pubs in Britain in 2004. Well, that sounds like a classy piece yeah. of media. Which I, was bet on... it was, I bet Danny Dyer uh, presented that. I or feel like... Is it before his time? Oh, 2004, it might have been One of them time. brothers from EastEnders then. Oh, yeah, Mitchell used to do it, didn't he? Ross Kemp even. He used to go to all these places. I don't know who Mitchell or Ross Kemp are. No, they were the Mitchell brothers, and he was called Ross Kemp in real life. Oh, OK. There you go. Is that the EastEnders brother? Yeah. Oh, right. The one that... Um, not the red one. Not the one that looks like Spam, the other one. I don't know. The one that looks I like Spam came both to Hastings really heads. recently. <laughs> this is not helping me it's not helping me at all don't worry the show described here we are again at the traditional British boozer a local pub for local people a centre for the community a place to meet old friends and mix with like-minded souls fat chance the first drinker says I call it Beirut if you've not got a car burnt outside your house in the morning you've had a good night why would anyone be proud of going to a pub that's like and when he yeah. says Beirut he's obviously never been to Beirut no, what he means is it feels like a war-torn country why would that be a good thing? Who knows? I mean, this one, um, if you think that's bad, uh, the man continued, we've been in jail all our lives. So fucking what? You win some, you lose some. I've been stabbed eight times, mate. Eight times and survived. <laughs> so these sound nice. The funniest thing I saw in this pub here was a mate of mine coming back from the United and Leeds away game. Coming back from the game, they nicked a sheep off the moors. They brought the sheep back to the pub on a lead. This other guy who was in the pub booted the sheep. Mean bastard. horrible. But his mate had a crossbow behind the bar. He shot the crossbow at the guy that booted the sheep and it went right through his arm here. He's wriggling on the floor. So, like, you've got a sheep on the floor there and you've got this geezer with an arrow on his arm. It was the funniest thing we've ever seen. We all hit the fucking deck, mate. It was just, like, so, like, funny. It was like, wow. (laughs) (laughs) 
Unfortunately... I'm fairly sure that these people don't speak with the accent. I appreciate that I've just misconstrued many accents. Obviously, I can't do a Mancunian accent, nor will I ever try. But um, unfortunately... We've got to go up there in a couple of weeks. Exactly. We'll get fucking I'm not, killed. I'm not abusing. Doing a live thing in Manchester soon. Oh, You're going to get fucking murdered if you start doing that. Um, well, again, I'm not going to do the accents. Nor could I. Um, unfortunately, Billy Green's closed for the final time in 2011 and was bulldozed into a patch of wasteland shortly afterwards. Gentrification gone mad. I know, just disgraceful. But 2011, that does mean that the people we know in Manchester would definitely have been able to frequent this pub for many, many years. Calling them old. <laughs> no, no, no. No, 2011. I mean, I was, how old was I in there? 22? Mm. So been you just said many, many years. That suggests that they've been going there for many, many years. But you know, you might you might have gone there as a kid, maybe not this one, but you, you'd have been aware of pubs in the area growing up your entire life and some people grew up there. I'm just wondering... Yeah, would anyone take their kid there? I reckon <laughs> if you... Uh, no, I can imagine... I can imagine you've done the school run and you just want to drink. <laughs> I don't know. Yeah. I, can, I can imagine kids being here. Maybe not in the evening. <laughs> But I reckon, anyway, who knows? I went to some pubs in Blowfield and they were not as. Did anyone rough kick as a this. sheep? No. I'm going to go with you no. You had to think about it much longer than I was. My mum put a cigarette out in my face by accident. <laughs> oh, <Jesus Christ. laughs> That's all I remember. She was quite drunk, it's fine. Why? What happened? She just accidentally locked into me and didn't realise that her hand was in my face. <laughs> You haven't got a marker or anything. What, it no, it was only little. It was like right in my eye. <laughs> she almost has your eye out with a fact. That's wonderful. Yeah, it's fine. It's fine. There was loads of kids. It was great fun. Like Danny Diablo's dog. Oh, Danny Diablo's dog. No, let's not. We'll talk about a dog later. It's so cute. <laughs> We're almost definitely not going to, but I'm just going to leave it there. Yeah, just leave it there. <laughs> We've got a serious news story now. At least as serious as a documentary project about a B-movie horror star and splatter rock band Haunted Garage can be. Yeah, <laughs> Definitely call it Garage. Garage. As we said earlier, we're going to be reviewing the film Surf Nazis Must Die. Woo-hoo. And in a lot of ways that is a celebration of the yeah. fact that something wonderful is happening. A documentary mm-hmm. about the wonderful Dukey Flyswatter Yay. is currently in production. And they are raising money on the internet via Indiegogo to try and make this thing a reality. An awful lot of the uh, work has been done for it already and the money is just to try and sort of finish it all off. Uh, Dukey Flyswatter, you will possibly remember from a couple of films that we've reviewed on this podcast. Oh, yeah, we've done he was in, Yeah, he was in Hollywood Chainsaw Hookers and he wrote Blood Diner. And he will oh, also... Sorry, guys, just going back, if you've not seen those two films, we <laughs> review a lot of films on here and some of them are you know, deliberately bad, and some of them are absolutely amazing. And those two, Blood Diner, Hollywood Chainsaw Hookers, two of my favourite films in the world. Well, this motherfucker's been in so many fucking amazing films. Yeah. I mean, he was in Sorority Babes and the Slime Ball Bowlerama, <laughs> which is a, certain, certainly a favourite of mine. Surf Nazis Must Die. Surf Nazis Must Die, which we're going to be uh, reviewing later on. Yeah. Uh, Nightmare Sisters, which is, uh, isn't the greatest film in the world, but it's pretty cool. In a film called Star Slammer, which is fucking great. And he was in a band called Haunted Garage. And he was in a horror punk band who, uh, I don't know if that many people will know about them, really. If you're not a horror nerd, you probably don't know about Haunted Garage. But they were a band who were around in the 80s. Well, they're still going now, but they started in the 80s. And they were kind of not far off what you might think of when you think of Guar. Oh, okay. But not without the all the make without all the makeup. They were like a yeah. proper they kind of came out of the death rock scene, I think, in LA. And their shows were just fucking chaos, mental 
blood everywhere, was... sort of like a horror movie on stage, and they were wonderful, absolutely wonderful. Was um, he already in horror at that point, or was the band the first thing? I think I he we'll just got. I think no. I think he'd made a few films, so he made a few films under his real name. I've never. I, I'd like to see the documentary to find out exactly whether I'm right here, but my yeah. presumption has always been he made a few films earlier on under his real name. And at some point during that time, his name in the, all those films that I've seen him in yeah. changed to Dukey Flyswatter. Yeah. So I think that then that would have probably been as a base based on the band. Oh, fair um, for this documentary, there is a trailer up at the moment, which gives you an idea of how amazing this film is going to be. It's got interviews with people from Guar, from Green Jelly, from the Dwarves, from the Adolescents, from the radioactive Chicken Hawks, <laughs> from Penis Flytrap. <laughs> um, it's also got a load of like really cool uh, B-movie screen queens and stuff uh, Brinke Stevens and Michelle Bauer in the trailer it also looks like they're going to be talking to Lloyd Kaufman from Troma and Fred Olam Ray who is that oh, man that you really like um, and it just looks like it's going to be fucking brilliant so I'll put that trailer up on our YouTube playlist I would encourage anybody if they have any money to give it to this because I really want this to happen. Yeah. Um, he sent me on a little bit of a uh, hole of a looking YouTube into hole? some of Juki uh, Flyswatter's uh, old stuff, some haunted garage stuff, and there yeah. is some wonderful things on YouTube which it- I will also put on the YouTube <laughs> playlist. One of which I think might have blown Chaborn's mind. <laughs> is it that interview with yeah. those two kids? So I think I honestly think <laughs> that I really would. I always say this: we make this YouTube playlist for every single episode, no and I will I will continue to do so. Yeah. But for this one, I would really, really recommend going and having a look at this one thing, which is from a public access TV show. I cannot remember what it's, what it's like, called. It's pre-Wayne's World. Oh, God, like yeah. It's, yeah, it's, yeah, yeah. it's what Wayne's World was taking the piss out of. Maybe even these two guys. I wouldn't be surprised. <laughs> well, I don't think they were well-known well enough. Oh, they were obviously know. just like two dudes from New Jersey. But they're not in even that... very short shorts. Yes. And like mus- muscle tops. And they made this programme where they were like, yeah, man, we'll say anything. Yeah. Um, and it's got like this, it's got the most fucking, I mean, the show itself, like ignoring the Hornet, the fact that Hornet Garage are on there, which is a whole nother amazing, amazing thing. But the show itself is so fucking cool. It's like they've made this little like title sequence where they're being chased around their like suburb in New yeah. Jersey and they've they've done some graffiti yeah. and then they get caught by a big man yeah. and he sort of wags his finger at them and makes them clean it off. They're kind of like funny guys, yeah. kind of cool dudes, but not cool dudes at all. Not at all. Brilliant mullet haircuts, brilliant like everything about them is fucking perfect. And they have Haunted Garage on there, and they and Haunted Garage are like this. Just Juki uh, Flyswatter and uh, this other guy, who's like the bass player. I can't remember his name. They're fucking mental. Like they're just they just going crazy, having a lovely time. Like just for there's no explanation for it whatsoever apart from that. But it's the entire thing. For some reason, at the very start of this thing, this man. <laughs> This man, what does he exclaim? So the other, the main guy, um, <laughs> one of them is quite expressionate and is introducing the show and he's just like, yeah, we're going to have this, we're going to have that, we're going to have this. And then the other guy just turns to the camera and looks at deadpan and goes, yeah, we like potato chips, you can't eat only one. And I'm just like, <laughs> what? It made me even more, I can't do it as well as he did, but you've just got to watch this chubby little boy say, yeah, we like potato chips. I think he's only chubby, by the way. He's not chubby at all. He's like he's like a muscle. Is he man. just a muscle boy? And he's a oh. muscle. No, no, no. But he's chubby because they've put some sort of prosthetic under him, so that later on in the episode, Haunted Garage can rip him apart. Oh, really? <laughs> it's oh. Fu- honestly, this thing is in three parts. I'm going to put them all on the YouTube playlist. It is fucking 
unbelievable that it exists. Yeah, we like it... potato chips. <laughs> I love it. So now all Siobhan says every day of my life <laughs> is, yeah, I like potato chips. You can't only have one. Yeah. God help me. It's so good. Honestly, it's so good. It's so Watch good. This thing. But also support the life and slimes of Dukey Flyswatter. Yeah. Uh, really, it's such a good cause. It looks like it's going to be such a fucking amazing documentary. So, so yeah. get on it. They've got an Instagram page. Follow it because they're putting loads of updates on there. Every day I'm looking at it and there's just little things popping up that make me very excited. Yeah. yeah. Speaking of excitement. Should we go to the county of excitement? That's been very exciting in Norfolk this week. Yeah. Uh, I mean, and I have heard about this story from a number of different people. It's it's hitting all the headlines in Norfolk. And (laughs) that's not even about much, but we're all very excited. It's been like this in the past. When famous people turn up in Norfolk, oh, there's a famous person. there's a famous person in Norfolk. In the past, we've had uh, Johnny Depp turn up and all, and he bought a bath from somewhere. Did, and that uh, doesn't he live in Norfolk, Johnny? Depp. I don't know if he actually did end up buying a house there, but he did buy a bath, and that made the headlines once. <laughs> but now, I bet it was a really nice bath. Oh yeah, well. it was from somewhere in Burnham Market. It was fucking fucking expensive. Okay. But from Morrison's to Weatherspoons, why is John Travolta in Norfolk? <laughs> Morrison <laughs> just is doing his shopping well I've seen two stories about this one is him sitting there having cream tea in Erpingham House which is a very nice vegan uh, like afternoon tea restaurant place but as well as being spotted in that lovely place in Norwich he has been spotted in Morrison's and Fakenham on April the 2nd where he was meeting fans and taking pictures this is very recent this is very recent he was also seen enjoying a meal in Weatherspoons in Deerham, the Romney Rye, on the March 31st. Very specific, because, you know, everyone's thinking, did I see John Travolta? Probably not. Seeing this, oh, I was in there that day. Fuck me, that probably was John Travolta. Well, is, that, is that how it would have gone? I imagine What was so. he eating in Weatherspoons? A meal! Yeah, but what? <laughs> you know, one of them microwave meals. He's probably he's put a chip in his pocket to give it to that man. <laughs> he's been listening to this and thought, oh, fucking hell, I, I need to... I probably want to start saving these chips. I hope Travolta hasn't been on the line when we've been doing this podcast because I'm pretty sure we've been quite mean about Scientology. We've been, and his films. (laughs) And his films. (laughs) That Scientology film. (laughs) Oh, yeah. Um, He was also spotted in the Toomland area of Norwich. On Sunday, he posted a video on Instagram of him and his daughter enjoying afternoon tea, saying they're in England celebrating her birthday whilst he is filming. But what's he doing in a Weatherspoons? It doesn't say much more than that. There's no, there's no reason picture of what to, he our, ate. to our international listeners. Weatherspoons is somewhere that you really only would go if I go there. Well, I don't go there a lot anymore. I used to go there a lot, but the only reason that you go to a Weatherspoons is if you're considering how much money you've got mm. and how much money you would like to spend largely on alcohol. Yeah, we used to go to a Weatherspoons because more or less for the pint of a pint of beer, the price of a pint. What did I say? A pint of a pint. Yeah. A price of a pint of a beer. You would get a dinner. You get a little dinner on the side. For like five, I think it used to be five pound fifty or something. Five something, yeah. You'd get a burger and chips and a pint. Yeah. It's a bit more expensive now. But John Travolta. He I mean, might have he's heard not, about it. He's not. Come on. He's not going there for. There's no reason to go to Weatherspoons. He's not. You know. Maybe he's a bit hard up. Scientology's probably nicked all his money. To make him a glorified person. 
And he thought, you know what? I've heard about this. I don't think Scientology has made him a glorified person. I think, if anything, they've done the opposite. Aren't they holding him hostage somewhere? Well, we're not really sure. We're not at liberty to say. Quite possibly. He's had quite a sad little life, hasn't he, John Gerard? Yeah, yeah. I feel for him, actually. He's lost all his hair now. Has he lost his hair? Well, well, it could be out of choice. I don't know. He does look like. He looks like um, a bouncer. You know, if if you were going to put on a play. (laughs) <laughs> and you were going to dress a man up as a bouncer. Do you mean you like, would dress him up as he looks? Do you mean like the play bouncer? No, annoyingly, I had that in my head. I didn't mean that necessarily. <laughs> but no, if you, I don't know, if you were filming an episode of EastEnders and you thought we just need to dress up some man in an oversized suit and put him up there and say, "Oh, he's the bouncer," you dress him up like how you John me, looks. Are you telling me John Travolta's got a suit that's too big for him as well? Are you sure this is John Travolta? And he not feels just it like, like, I mean, he is filling this suit. Is this just a gentleman tramp that no, they've decided it's John Travolta? That's definitely John Travolta. He's even put a picture up on Instagram now. What did the people of Norfolk say about John Travolta? Oh, they're very excited about seeing him. They are, definitely. They couldn't believe it at first. That's why these news stories... This is the third news story I've seen about it. Um, Gary Middleton, he's a security guard, mm-hmm. uh, said, I, I didn't even go up to him. He just came up to me and shook my hand. <laughs> we <laughs> oh, had yeah. a really Fuck nice off, chat. Gary. Fuck Fucking off, Gary. piss off. When I put it on my Facebook, everyone said I was mucking around and they didn't believe it was true, but it was. <laughs> and, and now, you know, egg on their face because everyone else has seen him. <laughs> Siobhan Beaven mm. didn't know there was another Siobhan in Norfolk. <laughs> Honestly, I was I was probably about 21 before I met anyone called Siobhan. Uh, she's a lifelong fan of Greece, and she said it was great to meet Danny Zuko as she got a selfie with him. She told the news, I was in my local pub, and we were literally just talking about him. <laughs> and then he appeared <laughs> across the road with his entourage, and I said, there is no way I'm letting this opportunity pass. So he didn't just come up to her. She he didn't come up to her and say, "Oh, you must be that person who really likes Greece," <laughs> no. like like he did with the security guard. Yeah. Oh, oh no. you must be that security guard I've heard so much about. <laughs> you know, I'm John Travolta. Do you want Do you want to take a selfie with me? <laughs> oh, all right. Here's a little clue into what he was eating at Weatherspoons. Oh. Student Jamie Salter shared a selfie with Travolta. Oh, that's a poem, isn't it? It would be if you said it right. Yeah. yeah well, <laughs> Jamie Salter shared a selfie with Travolta from the Romany pub. Which was that one I was speaking about from Deer? The Weatherspoons. The Weatherspoons. Yeah. He spotted the Saturday Night Fever star with a group of men eating burgers and pizza. He was with a group of men eating burgers and pizza. I went over and I said, Excuse me for disturbing your evening. I've just got a question. Is it John? <laughs> <laughs> I asked him oh, what he was doing here because you wouldn't expect to see John Travolta in Deerham. <laughs> They they told me he was here for a week and he was filming an old airstrip and that they were filming a Christmas movie. Wow. I wonder if John Travolta went to Greg's while he was over. Oh, well, I don't know. He went for some posh afternoon tea, like we said. He's very inspired by Weatherspoons. Maybe he will see Greg's. I feel like it's the next step, isn't it, really? This article does end with some choice uh, endings. Uh, Travolta was widowed in July 2020 when his <laughs> wife, Kelly Preston, lost her two-year battle with breast cancer. And in 2009, Travolta's family was struck by tragedy when his youngest son, Jeff, 
died at the age of 16 having a seizure in the Bahamas. So the there, end! There's no need. So it's like, oh, wow, John Travolta was in Norfolk. All these people met him. This is really nice. By the way, his wife's dead and his son's dead. Yeah, you're entirely correct. Throughout the article, they give clues to his films he's been in, talk about what a wonderful man he is, and then, yeah, end with two tragedies. You know, that's nice. <laughs> that's classic you know, British media. That, that is Norfolk storytelling to its fullest. Well, with that in mind, Yvonne, I think you should maintain your Norfolk accent and introduce this next band, who are from Spain. Oh, my gosh. Apologies in advance, Nafra. Nafra being the band. This song is called... Go on, <laughs> I believe in you. I don't. I mean, at least this Norfolk accent is going to get away from the fact I can't pronounce this fucking in any old, any old language. Right. This band is called Nafra. And the song is called Visca El Punk Equi Elva Para. Yeah, that's all right. That's probably right. Yeah. I reckon that's right. And we'll ask Spanish listeners, tell me how good I am. <laughs> um, this is from their self-titled album released last year. They actually released two albums last year. Ooh, fancy. And, uh, and this is from the first. So this is Nafra with Visca El Punk Equi Elva Para. Mm. lovely breakfast punks podcast listeners did you know that you can now support us via our patreon we have a number of different tiers that you can support us on and if you give three pound or more then you will get an extra monthly episode of this very podcast in which you may hear such intellectual nuggets as these 
<laughs> What's the picture that you've taken of your penis where it looks at its very best? <laughs> <laughs> Would you get hard? <laughs> what, <laughs> the you won the lottery. <laughs> Is that... <laughs> What's your controversial opinions? Social media's going to kill us. I quite like Gary Glitter. Yeah. What the fuck? If you could finger one thing, what, what would you finger? Oh, you're such a twat. I know. Please do a double fuck. <laughs> well, I think he accidentally got me in the, in the nether region. I was like, I don't know about this birthday treat, but it feels a bit weird. Daniel Filth is on his first date there. Furiously masturbating to someone's vaginal skin. Maybe I should have stuck with paedophiles. <laughs> <laughs> so sign up now at patreon.com forward slash breakfast punts podcast. Thanks for your money. Cheers. Welcome back to Breakfast Punks Podcast. We're now going to move on to our main topic of this episode, which is New York hardcore. New York. <laughs> we are not going to try and tell you a full history of New York hardcore. For a couple of reasons, yeah. I think. One, because it's just sort of too big. I didn't really know exactly where we would start, where we would finish. Indeed. And also, two, I think the history of New York hardcore is generally told by a huge group of people that just sort of say the same five or six sentences yeah. over and over and over again. And so whilst the story is probably very interesting... The way it's told by most of these people is so frustrating and annoying <laughs> that we didn't really think that there was much point in concentrating on that. Also, lots of people know what the story is. I have a strange relationship with New York Hardcore in as much as I fucking love the music, or a lot of the music, not all of it, including some of the sort of really trashy stuff that came later. But I find a lot of the people involved in New York Hardcore somewhat less to my taste. <laughs> they're not they're not the easiest they're definitely on the difficult end of uh enjoyable personalities i would say so what we did was we watched a couple of documentaries about it we did and we're going to give you a very vague picture of new york hardcore and then we're just generally going to sort of yeah. rag on them what? make some points talk <laughs> about their psychologies as Maybe. we normally do <laughs> i feel like we should have a name for what it is that we do on the breakfast punks i mean bitch about people is not <laughs> what i'd like to call it no um, i don't think that's fair i think that what psycho, we tend somewhere between psychoanalyzing and bitching <laughs> yeah exactly it needs to have a name but psycho we, bitching we, we can't are, call it psycho bitching well we, we could <laughs> no i think we should there you go we are not historians we are psycho bitches <laughs> <laughs> I think that comes up in this. Um, <laughs> oh God! So we're going to psycho bitch about oh about New York hardcore. We're calling it psycho bitching. We're there. We're keeping oh, so that. I don't really like the word bitch. Let's no. call it bab- babble. Psycho babbler. Psycho ragging. Psycho ragging. You call it ragging on. So I was, I was yeah, like, that's yeah. good. All right, we're psycho ragging the New York hardcore crew. <laughs> What's up? What's up? What the fuck is up? <laughs> I've heard a lot. So yeah, as, as Dave said, we watched a couple of documentaries, of one of which we'll talk about a bit more later because it does give a really nice snapshot of New York hardcore scene from the 90s specifically. Yeah. But we watched one called, uh, I think it was called New York Chronicles. It came out in 2017. It's called the New York Hardcore Chronicles, the movie. Is that what it's called? That's what it's called. Jesus Lord. Like you had to, like it has <laughs> to be described, otherwise you wouldn't realise that you were watching a movie. <laughs> 
<laughs> well, maybe some wouldn't. I don't know. So we, we're going to use that one as the loose basis for the, the storytelling arc. And yeah, and, then, and discuss and psycho, psycho rag along the way. <laughs> so New York Hardcore sort of started in the 1980s, early 1980s. The wave of punk had kind of come and almost kind of gone at this point. But bands like Bad Brains and Reagan's Youth were appearing in New York. I think they were from New York and they moved away or from outskirts. Bad Brains came from Washington and then they sort of quite famously moved to New York and brought an an awful lot of the style. I mean, Bad Brains kind of started hardcore in Washington, D.C. And from that you got Minor Threat and SOA and all of that stuff. And then they moved to New York. Yeah. So they kind of started two scenes in a way and they were the first band I suppose of New York hardcore even though they weren't from there yeah and it's definitely the band that the other bands reference as being like early on uh, influences and so yeah the first kind of wave of bands started playing between 1980 and 1984 it was in a venue called the A7 Club which was in the Lower East Side and the main bands that kind of played there a lot were Agnostic Front Urban Waste, Murphy's Law, The Psychos, Antidote, and Cause for Alarm, amongst many others, but they were the ones that I kind of nicked off of the bigger posters that they uh, (laughs) showed in the documentary quite a lot. An early scene in this uh, documentary that we watched has Agnostic Front nowadays walking around the Lower East Side, which is where all these bands kind of originated from, the main New York hardcore bands came from. And they're walking around saying they weren't feeling very wanted in that area, that they kind of... I mean, I can't imagine anyone felt very wanted in that area at that time. It would have been so rough and run down and impoverished. There's a a lot of mythology about the Lower East Side, but I mean, I think unquestionably it was like incredibly, almost like bombed out. Yeah. All the pictures you see of it, I mean, all of the buildings had been sort of bombed out and... People were squatting there. Mm. There was lots and lots and lots of like crime, and definitely like there was lots of different sort of groups. There was a lot of like drug dealing and that sort of stuff, and like cr- criminal activity that went on down there. But there was also there was a big cross punk scene. There was a big squat punk scene, that, and then these guys were sort of like they were skinheads. Really, yeah. that doesn't get brought up very much. But I mean, they were absolutely like. There's a real parallel, I think, with this sort of English oi scene. And oh I think yeah. That, that unquestionably, a lot of those bands influenced these these bands. But also just generally, I think, in the fashions and that sort of thing. Yeah. I mean, it was a, it started as a skinhead scene. And it's not okay. necessarily discussed in that way anymore. No, I would say... For obvious reasons, I guess. Of course. I mean, I would say Agnostic Front definitely still uh, don't shy away from no. saying that that's what they were from. I think they even sing that yeah, we're, that we're skinheads now or yeah. something when <laughs> yeah. they're walking around Thompson in Square Park. So, yeah, they talk about not feeling very wanted. So they got this kind of community of people together, kind of united under the idea of skinhead and yeah they all played in that club the a7 yeah um i mean i think uh, fairly early on they started playing cbgb's they did play other oh, yeah. places and there was a lot of venues but it's difficult certainly from the documentaries it's mm. quite difficult to pinpoint exactly when people started playing at different places so there's coney island high was definitely a venue that a lot of people played cbgb's and they started doing sunday afternoon matinees that was relatively early mm. but i don't think like right not right at the very beginning there's a place called great gilder sleeves oh yeah uh, that they played a lot so there, there were different venues but i think the a7 was kind of slap bang in the heart of the lower east side yeah and was and there was a recording studio there as well and there was like it was a slightly more than just the venue yeah what are your thoughts on those early bands agnostic front for example 
So it's not really the New York hardcore that I particularly like, but I do. I, the thing is with all of these bands is they, I mean, like, Agnostic Front are obviously still going. Chromax mm. are still going. A lot of these bands are still are still around now. Chromax are not just still going, but your band are supporting them <laughs> <laughs> in a couple of months' time. Yeah. It's going to be fun. But um, <laughs> but like so so it's difficult to really think about Agnostic Front without taking into consideration all the uh, things that they became. So, I mean, Agnostic Front uh, and Chromax both, I think, did their best stuff, and we'll kind of get to this, when they started crossing over and doing more metallic stuff. Mm. And that was definitely where they became most, like, musically influential to other people, I think. So in that context, like, I like the early... I really like the early Agnostic Front. I don't think, if you compare... It's almost a pointless thing to do. Mm. But if you take the big scenes, the big sort of hardcore scenes of the time, you know, the LA punk scene... Um, DC DC and New York I'd say New York is the least good yeah but I think that is pu- it's not really because they weren't as good musically or whatever although I got the impression definitely that these bands probably weren't as good musically like they when they very first started out they talked a lot about how they literally didn't know what the fuck they were doing mm. like they'd break a drum skin and they'd go across the street and get a bit of cardboard from a pizza box and yeah. use that as a drum skin, stuff like that. Like they had no idea at all. And obviously, a lot of early punks didn't have any idea about what they were doing. But I think that it was most, possibly more extreme here. I think these people, they really were like street kids, a lot of them. And they definitely didn't have any sort of musical training or anything like that. Um, so in that context, you could argue probably that they they literally weren't as good yeah. musically. But it wasn't so much that. I mean, I think that can obviously lead to some really good punk and some really good hardcore, depending on uh, who it is that happens to have sort of stumbled across it. But I think, honestly, and this is maybe something we're going to just keep going back to throughout all of this thing, the reason that I don't like New York hardcore as much as those other two scenes is because it seems so unartistic and because of the attitude of the people that do it. The lyrics are fucking for the most part dreadful particularly in these early bands and there's just a certain and I don't know exactly how to you know maybe this is what we need to uh, psycho rag on a bit more but like it definitely felt like a way less artistic scene and that might be because there's a class difference to some extent between New York hardcore and definitely Washington hardcore. Yeah, 100%. And definitely LA hardcore. So you had these these other two... Again, these are, to me, these are like the three main scenes that I think of, even though there's stuff going on all over the country. And there was definitely way more thought, philosophically and culturally, way more thought behind Minor Threat. And yeah. the, the Washington bands. Way more thought behind Black Flag. Yeah. Way more, you know, in LA it was much more political and in, uh, well, in Washington it was really political as well, but I think it was more personal political in Washington. Whereas New York hardcore just felt like, yeah, dude. Yeah, it does, definitely. And I think, I think you're right. I think you're tapping into like the, you know, the Washington kids were all rich white kids. Their parents all worked in politics. They had loads of money. Mm. LA was varied, but they at least were thinking. Yeah. Um, Whereas New York, I think, Probably were the most largely, at least this early scene, impoverished group of the lot. Oh, very much so. By a long way. And they probably felt that. And their music has continued to be this kind of bravado, I will stick up for myself, fuck you, I'm harder than you. Mm. Because for for a very, very, and they overplay it hugely, but for a very 
small, well, not small, who am I to say small, but for a portion of those people, that was realistic. Oh, like, yeah. there were, there were, you know, I think as much as John Joseph is a difficult man, he talks about being 13 on the streets, yeah. um, you know, n- no family home, kicked out of all of the foster homes, on heroin, goes to jail, and he's 13. Yeah, of course, you're going to, the mental health problems behind that mean, yeah, your your lyrics are probably going to be, I'm fucking better than you, I'm going to go do kickboxing to learn how to be a big man, and my my songs are going to be a, a, purely based in this infer, inferiority complex of, I swear I can beat you up, I swear I'm going to be able mm. to look after myself, because they've had to, or at least some of them have. I think that was true of a lot of early punks, though. There's two sides to this, which is hard to pick apart, from a in a historical way because obviously like we weren't there or anywhere near that you know mm. I had no idea no. what it was like to grow up in New York or in Washington or in in LA so you only go by what you hear yeah but I think that there's two sides to New York on the one hand the first thing that I think of to say would be well New York was a lot tougher than yeah. those other places it was like you you could tell and and definitely geographically like ignoring what people were there and what activities were going on just looking at what New York looked like in comparison yeah. to like Georgetown in Washington yeah. or or Hollywood the lower like, side in the it, 80s. yeah I mean Oof. obviously obviously there's no question about it it was it was a tough place but there is another side to this which is something that frustrates me a lot which goes on throughout this entire if you talk about any New York hardcore at any mm. point in history even now. Yeah. Even go to New York now and it's like so gentrified. It's like Disneyland. Maybe not all of it, but a really good chunk of it. Definitely Manhattan. Especially where some of the New York hardcore events oh, get put on now. Yeah, 100%. Like in some really lush bits of the, like the Upper East Side. But people are still very keen to... There's a, there's a, there is a mythos. Mm. There is a mythos of like, in New York it's tough, so therefore we're tough. Yeah. Now there's truth to that, of course, but there's also definitely some acting going on there as yeah. well. Maybe not in those original people. No, but or, or, or at least not back then. I feel like now, in those original people, there definitely is some. Yeah. I mean, Roger Murray, there's another documentary that you watch. I've read, read his book as well. And um, he's like, he's an all right guy, don't get me wrong. And he definitely had a really hard upbringing, really, and really was, a, you know, like a street kid and all mm. of those sorts of things. But now he lives with a rich wife in <laughs> California, has some kids, yeah. does Agnostic Front as a sort of, to make a bit of extra money, yeah. and has another job that he enjoys. But you put a microphone in front of his face he's like, and he's going to tell you about how tough everything is and how, yeah. you know, and talk about street justice and stuff. But it's like, well, that that's fine. Yeah. Unquestionably, that was a part of his life. And, I'm, and it's not for me to say, you know, that he's not telling the truth. Yeah. But definitely now, you know, he's a 50, 60-year-old man Doing who right. lives quite comfortably and yeah. just, you know. So I bring that up less about... Sorry, we've already jumped way ahead. I bring that up less probably about these guys yeah. who definitely did live it there's no question about that and then what New York Harkle became which was which was a bunch of people that slowly but surely I think generation on generation had much easier upbringings than mm. their than their the godfathers of hardcore yeah and go, you know again coming all the way up to today like just over the course of time people's lives definitely aren't they're definitely not street people after a certain point yeah they're definitely not living these sorts of lives but the message of new york hardcore has remained exactly the same yeah almost exactly the same almost yeah. embarrassingly so like 
it doesn't all of these documentaries that we watch it doesn't matter who it is or at what time in history or from where they came from yeah if you put a microphone in front of their face yeah. they say one of the same six or oh, seven I can, different sentences oh i can i can name it so <laughs> in that documentary that we are basing well sort of basing this on new york chronicles they go to the black and blue ball which um has happened for years and years and years now and it's a celebration of everything new york hardcore and they're talking to people outside and it comes up throughout the documentary and at one point they're like some of new york hardcore and three words and they almost all use the same three words yeah. and it's like real truth and family yeah. and I'm just like okay you're just and that's cool I absolutely get it but like what does that what does that actually mean to you what does it actually mean well that black and, and blue they're just told to say it thing. or they're you know it's just constant it, constant drummed into them like but it's almost like yeah it's almost but there's two sides to that because again it's like look right there's so many sides to that. Yeah. <laughs> Sorry. There's only two. We've, we've, uh... we've jumped way far ahead. But like that black and blue bowl is so weird. Because to me, and I said this to you before we started talking about this, like one of the things that it feels like when they're interviewing people outside. So I've seen a couple of different documentaries about those black and blue bowls. And, or bowls. Bowls. I think balls. it's bowls, actually. I think uh, I said it wrong. And so that is a hardcore festival that's being put on, um, in, you know, currently. Yeah. And has been, like you say, for a number of years. And they get all of the old American hardcore bands old New York hardcore bands specifically mix sometimes like Rancid uh, headlined yeah. one of them and stuff like I mean it is a it's a big production yeah. let's, let's say and that's fine like it's not, no different to any other no different to Gantt or Rebellion or whatever yeah you know, and it's you know, still it's an fine. independently like, run yeah thing. yeah yeah there's nothing yeah, wrong either. with it whatsoever but the people on the street that they interview it feels a lot like they're cosplaying being tough guys from New York hardcore. And yeah. that is particularly obvious in the fact that loads of them aren't even from New York. Yeah. And some of them are like German like, or Belgian. Yeah. But they still <laughs> they still try and say those what same words. What the fuck words. is up? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> and you're like, oh God. And there was definitely one bit in that film where they did go around and the idea was, I think, that they, I don't know what they said to them all, but it was like the start of the film. And it was like, right, just say something about New York hardcore yeah. for the start of our film. And they were, you know, the first few were like, at least had New York accents or whatever, and they were sort of like, what the fuck is up? This is New York hardcore. Yeah. But then by the end of it, it got to like a middle-aged German, and he was sort of like, yes, fuck shit up. You know, I'm here like, because I believe in the hardcore spirit yeah. of New York. And I don't <laughs> doubt, by the way, I'm not saying that someone from Sorry, Germany... Sorry, we're being really awful no, 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 but someone from Germany absolutely could be just as, you know, just if not more, definitely more legit than yeah. all of the other people. I'm not suggesting that, but it's just that... It's not the fact that like someone from Germany is saying I'm into hardcore. That's yeah. that's obviously totally fine. It's that they're very specifically taking on the role yeah. of New York hardcore. Yeah, and it's really odd because again, throughout all of, all of these things that we've watched, apart from a, a few people, basically, apart from Youth of Today, our three members of Youth of Today, yeah. are the only ones who don't necessarily do this. Porcel, oh, Ray, Ray Capo, and to some extent. Yeah, but that's like way later, so I suppose it's yeah. different. But Porcel, Ray Capo and Walter Schriffles all are obviously very educated and very thoughtful people. Everybody else, it almost doesn't matter if they've come if they're not even if they're not from New York or they've come in from the suburbs or whatever, they'll all yeah. admit to that. They're, none of them are pretending. Yeah. They're not saying, Yeah, we grew up on the Lower East Side. They're saying, Yeah, we're from Long Island or yeah, whatever. But then what the fuck is up? We're and it's like well, You know, yeah, you're from Baltimore or whatever. Or, also, and, it's know. something about the cosplaying element of it as well to to all the bands. Like, 
I'm just going to liken this to a show that I saw very recently. There's lots of young bands that are influenced by the later... We need to get to this later bit of hardcore, so we will. But all all influenced by the later, shouty, more preachy side of, of this New York hardcore scene. And there is this just learnt phrases mm. that I'm just like, what the fuck is that about? Like, we just pretty much... What the fuck is up, everybody? And it's just like... We're all fine. You asked us that literally in the last break of the song. You can stop asking us how we are now. I don't think that's, <laughs> I don't think that's 100% from New York necessarily, but it's definitely influenced. You can follow... So I think a lot of those bands that are around now... Yeah. And by the way, we're not going to try and deal oh, with Christ, no, New I don't York even know hardcore now, now or anything. I mean, I know loads of bands that were influenced by it, but you know, New York hardcore as a scene, whilst it obviously still exists, there's hardcore bands from New York. Yeah. I think when you say like New York hardcore, you're talking about very specific things. Yeah, the 80s and the 90s Which is what stuff. we're going to cover, really. But there's so many aspects to that cosplay as well. I mean, dancing no. is a huge element of cosplay that goes on in New York hardcore and in hardcore in general. But oh I think God. that the hardcore in general bit, we're probably going to keep referring to this as New York hardcore, even though it's not entirely their fault. But I think that the hardcore in general bit, which is really from the late 90s onwards, even mid-90s probably onwards, was so influenced by New York hardcore. What hardcore became yeah. wasn't influenced anymore by Black Flag or Minor Threat. It was, the one that people yeah. got influenced by was New York hardcore, and that became... What the, was. And then, you know, definitely there was a massive scene in Belgium, a massive scene in, in the UK, a massive scene in the UK, yeah. that was all like very much this sort of stuff. Yeah. But yeah, like the the cosplay that goes on in the in the dancing is is outrageous. The dancing. I mean, whoever thought to themselves, "I'm going to do a karate kick," because I have not not I'm going to I have to do a karate kick yeah. now because I like this music. <laughs> Where those two things got twinned, fucking blows my mind. I will yeah. never understand. I mean, you could argue that about almost all dancing. Of course, all dancing is just people doing stupid <laughs> things with their bodies to a, to a beat, right? And <gasps> I accept that. To no, it's not to be. It's not even in. Yeah, it's not, is it? It's not dancing. It's totally fucking. But my fa- my favorite thing about the dancing inverted commas, it's that they kind of like are sitting there, bop into the music. Not bop into the music. Sorry, I'm not eighty. But they're kind of like nodding their head to the music. Everything's in time, and then all of a sudden, it's as if they like something just switches in them, and they're like. I now need to punch the floor. And then they just start <laughs> fucking hammering the floor, doing arm whirlies with their arms, doing karate kicks, doing big spins. No one else around them is allowed to look in now. And it's just like, but you're not, <laughs> you, were, you, were, you were enjoying the music. And now, yeah. I don't know what you're doing. Well, Something, the... Some demon took you over and now you're, <laughs> and I, I appreciate it. I just really sound like an old person. It's just interesting to me. It's obviously, if you ask people who do it, they'll be like, it's an expression of the emotion and the energy that you feel when you listen to this music. And it's just really good to get it out. But that all I, just kind of sounds like bullshit I've for never ex- I've the ne- bravado of what it is, which I don't understand. I've never experienced an emotion that's made me immediately want to karate kick. <laughs> that's the thing that confuses me. Not for a me. good reason, like, and not because no. I'm enjoying the band. There was a, there was, I mean, we, we can talk about the dance in no end, because obviously there's yeah. so, we should probably acknowledge, because I feel like this is all going to get lost, because we're obviously going into, we're going into a proper psycho rag. Yeah. But, um... <laughs> The dancing is somewhat problematic. You know, there obviously is an aspect of, like, not welcoming people smaller than you into a into a place where everyone's kicking. Yeah. That's not 100% based on gender, but it is, you know, gender definitely uh, plays something into that. Mm-hmm. And there's loads of issues about dancing, right? Yeah. But I remember, you know, in the late 90s, one of the arguments for, for like, violent dancing at shows is that you have all of this pent-up aggression. On a Friday night, you go out, 
you see your favourite band, you all basically kick the shit out of each other, but it's in a controlled way and in yeah. a sort of friendly way. You know, you kick the shit out of your best mate and then you're hugging at the end. Like Fight Club. Like Fight Club, <laughs> yeah. And, uh, or, well, like, like a gangbang. Um, <laughs> Fight Club gangbang. <laughs> slash the New York hardcore you know, scene. Uh, they all get the same thing out of you, really. But, but like, <laughs> the point is, the point being that I can sort of see that argument. I don't agree with it necessarily. Uh, yeah. And, but I can see that there is a need for that and that some people can get something out of that. The problem is, obviously, that it excludes certain people. Yeah. So I can understand the idea of listening to, like, really heavy, really violent music and dancing in that. We're, like, getting carried yeah. away with it. But getting carried away with it in a way where you're kind of at least... I don't know. The difference with, like, let's say Moshin. Yeah. Right? Moshin is kind of an outdated concept as well, but people definitely still do it. Yeah. And if you used to go to a big gig and everyone sort of moshing and it, you came out with a few bruises, but you were all together. Yeah. Like, there was a certain element of, like, yeah, you were getting pushed a bit and you were jumping into people and they were jumping yeah. into you. Yeah, you there's... might fall over and grab someone and then yeah. they'll pull you back up and it's all a bit, like, joysticky. You don't you yeah. feel too thrown about. But that is definitely, for all of its wrongs, is definitely a really communal thing to do. Yeah. You know? So you can see what people get out of that. Yeah. It's like, I go to this gig... All these people I don't know, but we're all immediately friends as soon as the music starts. Yeah. And it's a really communal thing. Doing karate kicks in the middle of a room is not a communal thing. It's an, it's a, it's an individualistic thing and it's yeah. a performative thing. And it means I don't give a fuck about who is stood next to me because I'm going to like, my limbs are long. I'm going to flail them about. I'm not even looking to see if I'm going to hurt anyone. And if you don't want to get hurt, it is your responsibility to get out of my way. But you could argue the same with Moshin, though, in fairness. You're right, 100% right. But, and it probably is more extreme a version of that. But you could almost argue that with any kind of angry dancer. Yeah, the, but this is so big and violent. But it, like I say, it's a performance. Yeah. It's saying, look how high I can kick my leg. <laughs> yeah. And that's the, how, bit, that's the bit that I just don't get. Look how good I am at picking up change. And also, when you watch, <laughs> when you watch the videos of these things happening, if you go to... I mean, I would personally, and I know the music's really brilliant and, and what have you, but like modern day hardcore shows and festivals are not in my interest. Like, the videos of that black and blue bowl. Yeah. There's a fucking huge hole where three people or four people are karate kicking, but that hole could have been filled with 100 people, but they've all had to squish to the sides to avoid muggins in his big T-shirt and his trousers falling down, kicking his leg as high as he can, whilst the other one's swinging his arm in front of his head. (laughs) (laughs) It's just like, what are you doing? Like, there's all this space, but everyone's had to move. I I just don't understand... How I don't really enjoy when people don't think of other people that well, and I feel like this is the most obvious version of I don't give a fuck about everyone else. Hilariously, I'm singing a song about unity and how much we really look after each other. Yeah, well, that's, and that's yeah. what the culture pretends that it's about, which it probably is about. But I just think it's really interesting, especially when you get into the the bands that preach straight edge and veganism and I'm just like cool I'm looking after myself I'm looking after animals but fuck you I'm going to kick you in the head if you come anywhere near me yeah I, I mean that, really that, that, that was that definitely was something that came more about in the 90s 
Yeah, it boggles my mind. Yeah, and it's funny to watch. It is hilarious to watch. I mean, yeah, yeah, there is that. I love that the people who are doing it, like you say, it's performative, and they're obviously really sorry. Apologies to anyone who does spin kicks and windmills at shows who are listening, but also like question your life because you do look funny. And 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 the thing is, maybe you are really good at it, but it is funny. I just don't get it. Like I just look at it and I'm like. I don't know. We went to a show the other day where there was people doing it and I'd never really seen it that close up. There was only about 20 people in this fucking room and five of them were doing this and I was just like, this is fantastic. I don't understand it, but that's fine. That disconnection that you were talking about between, yeah, like you say, something like preaching veganism and then kicking people in the head. Yeah. There's a lot of disconnection. I think this is in hardcore generally, but let's let's make it specific to New York hardcore just so that we stick on the topic. Yeah. Um, There's loads of that sort of disconnection like in really simple things there's loads of interviews throughout both these documentaries that we watch where people complain about violence at shows yeah but then the same people laugh about how they got in a fight at a show the night before in the same interview without being able to consider the fact that those two things are opposing yeah and there's i feel like there's quite a lot of stuff like that that go on in these people's heads where they just disconnect you know, you could argue, for example, if you're going to do karate kicks in a pit and then complain about someone else fighting, it's yeah. a little bit like, well, you're an idiot. But yeah. but but I can see that culturally in your head you can disconnect those two things because you can say, well, I'm not trying to yeah. hurt anybody. I'm, I just like to do karate kicks because that's my dance style. <laughs> um, but But it's totally different in so many of these documentaries. There was just so many people. There was like... There was that bit they shoehorned in about how there were women in New York. Oh my god, I hated it. And unquestionably, there there were a lot of women in New York Carcore, but there were not a lot of women in bands. But there was a few bands that were at the beginning. Yeah, and they weren't really hardcore band sounding necessarily, but they were around and they played with some of these bands. And my guess is, I've never heard of them. That doesn't mean anything, but my guess is that they grabbed at certain bills where it was like look there was a there was a band with girls on it on this bill oh what in the documentary in the documentary because it was definitely like sort of shoehorned in but a lot of their attitudes to things even you know even there was like so confusing it was sort of people there was only one person that made some sort of sense in the end I felt like they were fed or brainwashed into saying what they were saying I think they um, were just idiots too, though. To be honest, yeah. I know what you're saying, but that gives that's, so, that's unfair. Yeah, that gives no, them the benefit of the doubt. Basically, I think, particularly in that first documentary, everybody that was interviewed—male, yeah. female, black, white—doesn't matter. They were all idiots. Yeah. So I don't, I don't think you need to make excuses. For well, them, just because they happen to have a vagina. No, that's true. It's true. <laughs> so some, I wrote down a couple of things that they said. One of them was saying that there's an intrinsic maleness to hardcore. And insinuated that all girls going know are attracted to it, know that that's it, and basically you get what you ask for when you turn up to these shows. You're going to something that's male, so if you get kicked in the head by a male doing a karate kick, then it's your fault for turning up. That was a very um, Gen X uh, attitude. But also, by the way, I think that they... Were not, well, this, this was makes, in the argument for this, it being inclusive, and yeah. I felt that there wasn't a very good example. No, no, not at all. But what, sorry, what I was trying to say is um, I don't think... The people weren't karate kicking at the point that you're talking. Oh, They're talking true. about much earlier on, but that doesn't really matter. The true, semantics. True, true, true. But mentioning. They said um, that it, you know, it was all inclusive, but they were more honest about it being more inclusive at the beginning. They said there were girls. There really were girls. There were girls in bands. Like you say, they pulled out some of the posters of some of the gigs, maybe the three that they were there at. Who knows? But then they were the ones that were saying, but it did change. And it was definitely 
a brotherhood, not a sisterhood, is what they named it as. Even in amongst the girls that were there, they just were there because they were down with the boys. They mm. weren't there because they were girls. They were they all the girls that said they fit in said they fit in because they were looked at as boys, which meant that they joined in, got kicked in the head, and did everything. There was no um, thinking that people might not want to do this. Um, but yeah, and then they said, you know what, it did eventually get ridiculous and stupid and actually the violence was against each other and it was just like, what are we doing? This is silly. But the bit that I was more referring to, I mean, all of that is totally true, the bit that I was more referring to as well was that they talked about how... They talked about all of that stuff and then they talked about how they were kind of women that were in the scene. Mm. And then just at that point, they then decided that they had to tell this story about how they actually beat loads of people up as well. Yeah, you know, that was awful. the bit, That was, again, that was like this real bit of disconnection whereby it started off by saying, oh, yeah, you know, there was all these tough boys and, you know, we we went anyway and all of those things. But then they suddenly started saying, and of course, we were tougher than most of the boys. And if you if you uh, said something wrong to a girl, then you wouldn't just get one girl attacking you. We'd all pile in and we'd yeah. all beat the shit out of you. And it's like... Why are you celebrating that? Yeah, what, you you're all... like you're also the problem. You yeah. you don't get a pass just because. Yeah. You don't get a pass for beating someone up just because you haven't got a dick. Like, but then I feel like so weird. I think it is a male centric idea of aggression, and mm. I think they're choosing to follow it. Yeah. Like you know what I mean? Like I don't think it's a. I mean, I'm just being very gender biased here. I'm sure. But their way, it's just, how can I fit in? The way I fit in is these boys are kicking the shit out of each other. Like you say, the way I'm going to fit in is also, we're girls and we can kick, we, we, you know, we're just as tough. What the fuck is up? What the fuck is up? I'm going to kick your shit. <laughs> I just, you know, I don't, I don't know. I just think it's weird because it's another example of like somebody just disconnecting themselves completely. Yeah. Complaining about violence and like having this whole bit in the documentary where they sort of shoehorned this thing in and said, oh, this wasn't just boys fun, there was also girls here. They obviously yeah. felt a need, because it's made re- relatively recently, they had a yeah. need to try and paint New York Harker in this certain yeah. way that it obviously wasn't. Yeah. But then they couldn't even help themselves. They couldn't yeah. even just say, yeah, these boys were all being idiots and like we didn't feel that safe, but we started our own bands anyway. And it's yeah. like, well, yeah, that's fucking inspirational. That's amazing. Yeah. No, you couldn't end it there. It had to also be, yeah. yeah and then we beat loads of fucking then, people. Yeah, we beat her <laughs> up. I'm like, oh god. We will return to other disconnects in the New York hardcore scene in a little bit, <laughs> but let's move back to the music because that's what it's meant to be about. So then we started to see the beginnings of these crossover bands, which crossover means crossing over with thrash and metal in general, because basically metal kids were starting to come to these shows. Some of the bands were already a bit metallic sounding, and as much as I think Cro-Mags were noted to be a band the the heavy metal kids kind of liked, and it was thought of as ballsy for these metal kids to be turning up looking so metal at these shows. Yeah, um, which is how they described it. Again, the problem with these stories are they all come from these goofs yeah. who all want to sound tough. But everything I've ever read, it does sound a little bit like if you turned up to a hardcore gig with long hair, you probably did get yeah a bit of trouble. So, <laughs> well, yeah. And I think in some way they were respected for still going because I think mm. Metal Kids still went and there was more and more of them uh, turning up. And it started to influence the bands because some of the bands that started around this time weren't so influenced by the things that the first bands were influenced by and were getting a bit more into... I think Kill em All was mm. um, noted to be a very big influence on the bands at this point. And so you started to see more metallic-sounding hardcore, which begins probably the kind of hardcore that you really prefer. Yeah. It, it at least starts it starts it going down that hole. A big one, Biohazard? 
probably the well, main that's one. Well, way, that's way later. Oh, I mean, the first, okay. the first bunch of crossover bands start pretty much with Agnostic Front releasing Calls for Alarm. Oh, of course. And Cro-Mags. And then there was a bunch of bands that kind of then started around about that time that were specifically crossover bands like Crumb Suckers. The band called Carnivore with Pete Steele from Typo Negative. Mm. Uh, whoop Whoop, Pete Steele. R.I.P. R.I.P. He wasn't a He's juggler. not a juggler. Anymore, <laughs> He's got a lovely big cock. Oh, massive um. penis. Bless him. And then as a result of that crossover thing going on, there was a bunch of younger kids mm. who all decided that they wanted to kind of sound like the original sound of hardcore. And that's kind of where Youth of Today come in. Mm. Um, they wanted to go back to lots of different things. They didn't really enjoy the metal stuff. They said they didn't really enjoy the idea of talking about Acid Rain. Well, I think Acid Rain was the name of the band, right? Yeah. <laughs> yeah, but they didn't want to talk about all the weird, like, wonderful sorcery and stupidness. I, I that... think metal bands did also sing about Acid Rain. Yeah. I, I see, I <laughs> I see where the confusion came. I was came, like, yeah. is he talking about Acid Rain? But, you know, it, it, it kind of like, it wasn't about anything anymore. And so Youth of Today were like, they wanted to take it back to it being about something, uh, a more primitive sound, it spoke to more people, it had a message, whereas um, the crossover metal stuff didn't really, it was more a continuation of we're really tough or this is just generally life. Yeah, and I think that message was straight edge for the most part. And and then later on it was kind of a spiritual message. But um, Universal tolerance and love, I've got written down. There you go. Which is what uh, Ray Capo said. <laughs> and I believe him. He's a good boy. A good boy. Um, but yeah, I think the straight edge thing probably came from a lot of different, for a lot of different reasons. One was that there was like obviously loads of bad drug habits. I mean, it kind yeah. of follows the trajectory that almost all hardcore scenes follow, whereby they're all really exciting in the early 80s. Then... People get into drugs. Lots of people drop out. Yeah. And then some people decide, you know, like in LA, an awful lot of punk and hardcore bands sort of became a little bit cock rock. Mm. <laughs> and, you know, and so like it just depended on where you were, I guess, geographically yeah. as to what terrible thing you took on. Yeah. And I think that in fairness, the New York hardcore stuff, the crossover stuff definitely was the better of that. Like, yeah. Like, you know, mixing Slayer or early Metallica with agnostic front or chrome mags that's fucking great yeah that worked really well but yeah there was a, a lot of drug problems and there were and a lot of these kids specifically youth of today and gorilla biscuits yeah. less so oh. but to some extent gorilla biscuits were coming from outside of new york and like we alluded to earlier they were probably more educated they were from middle class backgrounds mm. and what have you. but they did all move into new york and um at a time where it was still rough as still like. rough yeah yeah, yeah. And brought this straight edge message and sort of brought it back to what, you know, they said, like, brought it back to kind of more what Minor Threat were doing mm. and that sort of stuff. Well, someone wrote, I can't remember which person uh, said this, but they said, I may have missed Minor Threat, but this could be mine. I yeah. think it was Mike Judge. Yeah. I think he heard you He's say and he was very like, serious about this. He, he is, isn't he? <laughs> and he was like, holy shit. Because, oh, that's it. Because he's saying he'd fallen out with music altogether. Yeah. He was done with it. He, he does didn't that like a lot. the scene. Yeah. <laughs> we watched a documentary about him, but he's very dramatic. <laughs> yeah. That's on, uh, that's, I'll put that on the YouTube playlist actually we won't talk about that too much but yeah yeah mike judge is an interesting character and uh, vice i think vice made a well, he, documentary about him yeah and he goes on to be very serious in this scene but um yeah he dropped out and then yeah he had youth of today and he was dragged along to a show didn't want to go hurt them and he was like holy shit here yeah. we are and does he end up joining them for a bit yeah he plays drums so yeah so uh, i mean that whole youth crew stuff to me that is if if i was to pick yeah, a part of New York hardcore that was the most exciting, best thing. That that to me is is it. Like Youth of Today, Gorilla Biscuits. I yeah. think Gorilla Biscuits are one of the best hardcore bands ever. Yeah, pretty much. 
Um, but yeah, and Youth of Today, there was Judge, Underdog, Bold, Warzone, like those bands. And they didn't all necessarily sound exactly the same, but those bands that came out like in the sort of later 80s yeah. uh, in New York, I think. like and the, but, the, but the problem, if it's a problem, and maybe we shouldn't go into the straight edge thing too much because it's another thing to unpick a lot, but the problem was that they brought this really good message. Yeah. Whatever you think about straight edge, I'm not saying a really good message like nobody out there should drink, obviously, but I just mean yeah. like, you know, it was a positive message. There's no no question. But what it led to in the later 90s was yeah. hardline. And also what it did was it set up this kind of fashion yeah. thing, which is definitely still rearing its ugly, ugly head and probably will never go away in hardcore. And this is another example of like, not just New York hardcore, but what hardcore became. Yeah. This uniform. And it still is. And still is. This this sort of uniform, both in the context of what you wore, but yeah. also uni- uniformity of music. Different, well, yeah, the watch. Go get the swatch get, watch get the with the X watch. on it. Uh, get the correct trainers. Wear champion clothes. Yeah. Or Tommy Hilfiger, if that's in at the time. Yeah, it all became Seven very brands. like brand. And it was, I mean, Which all of that so stuff is so, is so non-punk as well. And yeah. obviously... That doesn't mean anything in 2022, but I think in the late 80s, like the you know, saying Nike was cool, even in the 90s, it's like it, it, it never added up to me. It's, it's, no. it's totally anti punk, it's like a corporate yeah. version of like whatever punk you follow or pertain to have a part in. Like, anti corporation is pretty much the like, if you're into corporation, then you're not punk at all. I don't know if that's necessarily true now. Not now, oh no, not nowadays yeah. with you know, people sipping their margaritas in posh bars and what have you, but. I just think it... Corporate margaritas. So, <laughs> I don't know, maybe there's corporate ones. I don't know, but you know what I mean? Like, we're we're in a world where you can still do it. It's harder, but, you know... Yeah. You know, you don't have to be a victim to a corporation and stuff. So it's just really strange that this, A, existed, and B, still exists for sure. Like I, I think more so. Where, yeah. I, think more, I think it's more so now. I still yeah. see that watch everywhere. Yeah, <laughs> yeah no, I was just going to say, uh, harking back to Mike Judge, he comes along and starts Judge... Mm. Very, very good band, but their message is of Definitely more hardline. hardline. Yeah. Basically, I'm straight edge, go fuck yourself. Um, but in comparison to like what came next, which let's go on to what came next very quickly, like things like Earth Crisis, like the whole Victory Records stuff. Yeah. Judge is not hardlining compared to what happened. No. In the late 90s, you went to a straight edge show, and well, not, this is, so, I was about to be so generalised, sometimes people went to straight edge shows, drank a beer and got beaten up for it. You know, uh, there used to be people like proper aggro at you asking you if you were a vegetarian. Yeah. Stuff. Like, and yeah, even I remember that in fucking London. So I can't imagine what yeah. it was like in, in New York. Judge was a hardline band for the time. But really all it was, was he was on tour with Youth of Today. They were saying about this straight edge message and they weren't really getting very much respect from some people. And sometimes people come and take the piss out of them. Yeah. And he was like, fuck this. Yeah. If people take the piss out of me, I'm gonna, I'm not gonna take it. Yeah, and you know that's not. That's I'm not okay. saying he's a hero, but yeah. that's not that bad. It's not as bad as you haven't got an X on your hand. Yeah. So me and all of my mates are gonna beat you up. Yeah. Which also is an over dramification people... of what actually happened. But yeah. there was an element of that. There were yeah. bands who, and still are to some extent, mm-hmm. 100%. who who are like. 
Nazis. They're Nazis. They're just, they're not necessarily racists. They don't have know? a swastika, they have an X. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> no, totally. No, it's true. I think this is what Youth of Today ended up breaking up over. And they say, they say it in that documentary, one thing they said was, it became, I love me and I hate you. Yeah. And I yeah. see, and you see that to this day. We went to a gig the other day where middle of the set, a man was just like, go and beat someone up. And you're just like, what the fuck are you talking about? <laughs> but that's cosplay. Yeah, no, no, like, it was. It was huge yeah, cosplay. Like, yeah. But the thought that, that that is still like, why screaming to a room full of people that are definitely thinking the same as you fucking get to the front or I will fucking beat you up you're just like what is wrong with you what is actually wrong with you you're cosplaying an arsehole maybe you are an arsehole but what as Ray Capo described it buffoonery buffoonery and I I think he absolutely knocked it on the head and of course so Youth of Today and then later uh, they well Ray and Porcel went on to be in Shelter they were Harry Krishnas by yeah. the, by the, I mean, they weren't during most of Youth of Today, but they were... And a lot of these bands, a lot of Harry Krishna sort of worked its way into the New York hardcore scene, but mm. then so were the Cro-Mags. Like, some of the, the <laughs> earlier bands, they all became fucking Harry Krishnas. The Cro-Mags become Harry Krishnas yeah, as yeah, well. Yeah. And it was like... So it's quite confusing, because that is a that is a message of... I You know, I'm not a religious person, and yeah. I don't agree with the religion, and I'm certainly not saying Harry Krishna's great. Yeah. But, you know, the message of... Yeah, that's where the veganism and vegetarianism yeah. thing came from, mostly in in hardcore, and like it's where you know they don't preach, <laughs> they definitely don't preach violence. No, they definitely don't. You know, like, and it's so that's another one where it's just this total disconnect where yeah. these there's all these fucking guys going and doing cage fighting, but also being Harry Krishnas. Yeah, and it's just like what I don't understand why no. in your brain at some point you don't think to yourself. These two things don't really add up. No, they don't. Like me, tr- me being, yeah, me talking about how tough I am. Surely that goes against like the Krishna principles of more or less like I am nothing. I am nothing. My, I give myself. My, yeah, I am my, my energy. My physical form is nothing. Exactly. <laughs> it's so bizarre. It um, is bonkers. What did? Sorry. And then now I feel like it's a good time to bring up. What did that man say at the one hundred and eight show? <laughs> He's like, join us in this transcendental jam or oh. something. <laughs> yeah. And then it's just a fucking heaviest, <laughs> heaviest noise I've ever heard, which they all claimed was a form of meditation anyway. Let's but in fairness, they were, they're genuine. They well, were legit. Well, they, but they were, weren't well, saying legit. One of them wasn't. So let's move on now. We'll move on to the 90s now. I don't really think we've covered the 80s. Well, we did warn you at the start of this. This is going to be we a psycho gonna, rag. We were not going to tell a history. We were just going to talk generally. But we then watched a film that's just called New York Hardcore, which was made initially in 1995, yeah. but came out... I, th- I don't know if it was shown back then, but it ended up coming out in the mid-2000s. And so as a result, there's a, there's a documentary where it catches up with a load of people that are active in hardcore. And then on this DVD, there's then a load of... Inter- which are almost more interesting, interviews with them 10 years later. Oh, yeah. So I think we just go through some of these bands and have a little talk about them. Yeah. I mean, just on a we'll general point, is it worth pointing out that in 1995... Uh, those chin beards where you just had like a rectangle. Oh, those of, soul patchy um, things. Yeah, so they were really big. Um, a lot of the people that were uh, from the original scene and then were being interviewed later on, they had those beards where they're like really carefully tailored. Like, oh, yeah. um, they were all fat, but <laughs> just around their all of their different chins, they just had like a line. Oh, that of little hair. nice line, yeah. Um, I don't know if that's important. Very uh, barbered. Celtic tattoos. Oh, yeah. were obviously really big and I presume they've all covered them over in that same way that David Havoc has covered over all of his nightmare of before Christmas tattoos. <laughs> What's he done? He must <laughs> He's have blacked, blacked, out. Out. He yeah. blacked them out. He's blacked them out. I don't know if any of that's important but I just wanted to mention <laughs> it really. 
Here's some of the some of the bands in this uh, documentary were kind of big at the time. Some of them, I mean, I suppose they were probably of a similar uh, size at the time, but some of them went on to be known more. Mm. And I was definitely aware of some of them at the time and not others. I don't yeah. know that that doesn't mean anything necessarily. Um, we'll start with 25 to Life. Oh, Rick to Life. Rick to Life. Oh, I liked him. So he is quite a nice man. I um, the impression he's not liked by many I thought that well no he doesn't seem to be very popular I'm not really sure 25 to life were kind of like what I would have considered in the mid to late 90s a big New York hardcore band at the time yeah I have again I have nothing to base that on really but they were touring a lot they did an awful lot they released some albums and I quite liked them at the time although now listening back to them I'm not really sure why because his voice he sounds like a cat coughing up up a hairball (laughs) It's a very unusual voice. But he knows it's quite that, impressive. Yeah, it's quite no, a cool it voice in a way, but it's not nice to listen if to. Someone says it to him and he's just like, do you mind that no one knows what you're saying? He's like, well, that's what the lyrics are for. Yeah. Like, okay, <laughs> I know, I know. But it's hilarious how much it doesn't sound like a word. But uh, good on him. Rick to Life uh, is probably one of the most, uh, one of the biggest influences on uh, Haste. Uh, so, so I'll just tell you a very quick story. Is it genuine? Sorry, I yeah, genuine, this is bullshit. genuine. No, so not musically or lyrically or, or anything or in any way, wise. shape or form. Because you don't. None of you look like him. No, but it, uh, when we were recording our second EP, we had a conversation with Sam, the guy that recorded it, who likes a lot of hardcore, and obviously I do too. And we were talking about, for some reason, Twenty Five to Life, and he said that Rick to Life had just cut all of his dreadlocks off and sold them on the internet to people uh, in little coffins and we were all laughing about this and we had a song that didn't have a song title and so someone suggested calling it Don't Judge Dread Coffins and so that was the first stupid song title that oh. Haste have ever got and now I'm pretty sure we're only known as the band with stupid song titles Fuck's and that was, that was the one the, Rick the, to life. Rick to life. No, do you know fault. what? I take it back. I don't like him. <laughs> I thought, you know what? I like this man. He's selling everyone's stuff on concession stands everywhere he goes. Nice boy. Nope. Rick to life did a bit of cosplaying, I think. This is totally just a theorem. So I might have got this completely <laughs> wrong. A bunch of these people did to some extent. But he was less of... So a lot of the people in this documentary in the mid-90s are like very much almost like hip-hop guys. Mm. Like they talk in, in that way. He obviously wasn't. He was obviously a suburban child who loved hardcore he definitely i don't think you can question he did so much stuff and you can tell from the documentary like he was the one who was promoting all of these bands yeah. he was he when he went on tour he was taking other bands merch yeah with him and he had a concession stand where like, he sold everyone so he was like super keen but he was obviously from the suburbs and he tells a story about how he used to be on heroin and then he ended up in prison and that was why uh, the band was called 25 to life Obviously, he didn't get 25 to life, which I think is what you get for murder. (laughs) Um, But I did think that that story didn't quite ring true. And I feel like probably what happened was he used to like, he probably sold marijuana at school, got caught, probably spent like one, a bit like you, like one afternoon in a police cell (laughs) and then decided that he was going to base his entire persona on that. See, I took I from it. I took from it otherwise, and maybe this is uh, maybe this is me being too forgiving of a character. So they say to him, "How was your childhood?" He goes, "Oh yeah, you know." Because I thought, f- as much as most of these people upplay their toughness, uh, toughness yeah. a couple of people 
downplayed it mm. and they upplay their adult toughness but they downplay any of the things that led to them being uh you know an unfortunate person um they speak to freddie madball and they're like how's your childhood and he was like oh yeah real normal i mean i got to sing with you know agnostic front but other than that was really normal and i'm like i bet your life wasn't that normal, it wasn't normal yeah. yeah i bet you had a horrible <laughs> childhood and there's i thought the same with rick because i think i felt that he was because i said to him like how's your childhood yeah no it was all right it's all right not too bad you know now i get tattooed so i don't spend money on drugs and and then he and then he started telling bits of it so if, i think you take it as maybe upselling of a small thing i feel like he was downplaying it a bit because he sounds like quite a genuinely looking after people nice person now but then equally i don't know no i so i don't i think that what we're saying actually could fit together which is what i probably believe is that i don't yeah no i think he probably did have a hard upbringing yeah. I mean, you don't have you don't have that many tattoos probably <laughs> if, if in particularly not in 1995 if you've not got a few like demons in your closet yeah but what i'm saying isn't that he didn't that he had a really easy life what i'm saying is that i don't think that he ever really went to prison um, i think that his persona of like i'm ripped to life because yeah. it's like 25 to life yeah that I don't it, know. it doesn't matter really yeah i don't know i'm not so sure about bless him anyway talking about idiots oh. we then go on to district nine District 9 aren't a band that I know very well. Not terribly good, but one of them uses the term word to your mother at one point, and the lead singer, and there was more than one lot of live footage at a different gig, the lead singer always wore a backpack on stage. Little Jansport bag. <laughs> it's got nothing in it, but one time he stole some towels from a hotel, put them in his bag, and they exploded during his set. Is that, I thought you'd made that story no, that's up. What he said. Oh, you were telling me a story. No, he said it. He <laughs> no, said I thought you were wife, joking. His wife had nicked loads of towels from a hotel they were staying at, put them in his bag. He'd gone to play the gig, and then he was jumping about, and they all spilled out in the in the crowd, and she ran out and grabbed them. There is absolutely no excuse for him or any reason to wear a fucking backpack on stage. Especially when it looked empty, apart from the time he had towels It was definitely empty. It was definitely there purely as a fashion thing. Yeah. Because, like, in the 90s, again, I don't think this is, like, that shocking to anyone, and it's sort of true now as well. Backpacks were super cool. Yeah. On two shoulders. I had to have a Jansport bag when I went to school. You don't know the mid-90s, though, darling. Oh, well. It it was way bigger in the (laughs) (laughs) mid-90s. I'm kidding. But... Yeah, the guy's just an idiot. They catch up with him ten years later, and he's basically just made a nice little life for himself in yeah, Baltimore. Yeah. He sort of lives, and he says that he's getting District Nine back together. He's like, oh, I've got some, I've got some great people, and you're like, oh yeah, who? And he's like, yeah, I got my Andy. wife's brother, and no, he doesn't name him. He's <laughs> oh, just no. like, yeah, Big Phil <laughs> and uh, uh, Bobcat. He's like, you don't know. <laughs> you think, oh, who's he gonna name? Oh, literally, who who even knows who these people are? Yeah, this, good for him. The guy is a fucking idiot. Oh. Um, the guitarist in this band is obviously like living a really. He's like this young kid that yeah. doesn't seem to give a fuck, but like found Acc- a, found a dead body up the road a couple of accidentally you know, did crystal meth two days yeah. ago. But he's fine. <laughs> like, I don't know whatever happened to him, but uh, oh. he look he looks about. At one point, he has to work out his own age. And in order to work out his own age, he only has to add eight, six to eighteen, I think, and he can't do it. And he asks for help. So but they know, never, they never answer that. No, they it never answer. That. But he looks about twelve. But I think he must be twenty-four. I mean, I I'm doing the maths for him. I think him, he's twenty-four. But I'm not really sure. Poor lovey. Um, and then we've got Vision of Disorder. Vision of Disorder went on to like way bigger things. This was really early. They were still doing so. Vision of Disorder became known in the later nineties. 
almost like a pre sort of kill switch engage type of thing. They oh, did yeah. that thing. They were one of the first bands to do that thing where you scream the verse, sing the chorus, big chorus, yeah. sing, scream the uh, yeah. verse, do a big chorus. They were one of the first bands that I ever heard to do that, and I think probably were one of the first bands to sort of in a vaguely mainstream way to do okay. that. So they did influence a lot of I'd... really shit things <laughs> that came afterwards. But See, still. in this documentary, I'd not heard of them. I'd not heard of any of these people apart from Madball, really. And uh, I found myself really disliking him at first because the guy who writes the songs and sings obviously finds himself very good yeah. and very poetic. But then... When they showed footage of him and with their lyrics, I was like, actually, they are the better of the lyrics so far, and yeah. this is the better sounding thing. It's um, weird. But I've never heard them before. It's weird when they go and catch up with them later, and he's just sort of like this kind of suave dude. He looks like the dude from Marine 5. Yeah, it's really <laughs> odd. But then, weirdly, that's how I remember him. Like, I remember him being this sort of, like, quite handsome lead singer in this sort of hardcore band. Not with his little bright bleached dreads that he had in 95. No. Oh. Uh, going back to him being a poet, he says at one point he thinks he is a poet. But, and this is a quote, no point in talking about the lyrics because we don't have time. (laughs) (laughs) So I thought it was quite good. Um, Also, there's a guy doing Kung Fu in the Vision of Disorder pit who's wearing a Portishead shirt, which really really bemused me. And I wonder whether he does Kung Fu when he hears, like, Portishead. Glory box comes on. Because he really likes it. (laughs) Because it makes as much sense. To do a kung fu kick to Glory Box, True. as it does to yeah. Vision of Disorder. Uh, then we got a bit of Marble. I don't think we need to talk about nah. Marble too much. But then we go on to Crown of Thorns, no. Thorns with a Z. Oh God! This guy's name is Ezek. But now it's Danny Diablo. But now it's Danny Diablo. And the important thing, very important thing to say about this guy is that he. I'm pretty sure he's now a juggalo. If he's not an actual juggalo, he's definitely this. done loads of jugglerism. Jugglerism. <laughs> um, he is kind of like a rap dude now. He was in Scarhead for a long time, who I think were on Hellcat Records. They were definitely like the most known thing that he's done. Oh, okay. And um, I never really listened to Scarhead, to be honest, so I can't really tell you what they're yeah, like. They got mentioned a lot. I think I it is kind of like, I know Tim Armstrong produced them yeah. and Travis Barker. Well, Travis Barker signed, signed him. I oh, signed him. As, as Danny Diablo, artist, right? yeah, I think so. So, I mean, he just drops as many names as he possibly can. He's got a one-eyed dog who's really cute. So, a girlfriend who keeps calling a whore, so that's nice. Uh, he says he says every single bad word, and apart from the racial ones, he pretty much drops every single bad Ooh, word. Oh no, I think he does imagine. some racial ones as well, uh, as he thinks is as uh, a camaraderie thing, but he doesn't get to do that. Yes, he does. Doesn't yeah, he, he, he does. does that a lot. Yeah. And he's Jewish, so he throws a few Jewish things around. Oh, actually, talking about problematic language, Rick to Life, oh. he really balls up at one point. So when they catch up with Rick to Life in the mid-2000s, he's touring and he's moaning about all the bands who used to be hardcore bands who have now, in his words, become pretty. And he's talking about 18 Visions, who were that terrible band who did the shouting in the verses, singing in the chorus things. And then he starts talking about AFI, who obviously in 2005 had just got really big. Yeah. And um, this is another example of where people have just, they just completely disconnect yeah. two things. that they, He literally says this in one sentence. He's obviously prepared this joke. Yeah. He's decided that it's really funny to call AFI, wait for it, children, oh, gay-fi. Right? Oh, yeah. So obviously he's using gay in, the ter- in, in a negative term. way, yeah. right? 
So, and he's obviously prepared this, and he's standing on stage and he's talking about it, and he's saying, "Oh, I hate all of these bands who are pretty boys. Like, we're not pretty boys. We've been ugly since day one. Yeah. Like, look at Eighteen Visions; they're in the charts now just because they put makeup on and all of this stuff." And then he goes to say, "And gay fi," because he's obviously yeah. got it ready because he thinks it's funny. Then he stops himself. He goes, and they also get. And then he stops himself and he goes, I mean, we've got absolutely nothing against anyone who's gay. Like, you guys can just do whatever you want, but gay FI. And he's like, no, mate, you can't have you it both fucking ways. It. Do like, what you want, but... Uh. Yeah, either, either gay is a term to you. use to insult people with, or you don't have a problem with people's ways of life. That doesn't you fucking do add both. up. And that's one sentence. That the, and again, that's that I lost patience with rick to life true true yeah Miss, sorry. sorry mr to life, at that, to point, life. At, at that point mr to life, mr. R to life. was dead to me <laughs> uh john joseph is quickly um interviewed in this in this 1995 documentary and um he's being tough a lot and then he's saying about how amazing his life was and then at one point he says actually uh i'm writing a script about myself for a film <laughs> and then doesn't, and then no, no, doesn't pick Ryan up the on that right now. No, nothing else nothing about that. I mean, presumably the film's never been made. <laughs> but he says it quite confidently. Then we've got no redeeming social value, who consider themselves to be what you can only describe as very wacky. Very wacky. And they do joke songs. From what I can make out, they were certainly still going in the like late two thousands. They might I, even still be going now. Unfortunately, I kind of enjoyed them a bit as people. I think because, it's because I think that scene does need taking the piss out of. So I think that they were slightly taking the piss out of a scene that really does need the piss taken out of it. I but I think that would not be true. Enough. That's and sort of half. I think the reason that you like them is because they sound like something from your youth. Oh, but that's the problem. Like, yeah, no, 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 it does. They're, they're more like Bloodhound Gang mixed oh, yeah. with like Jackass. Yeah, Basically, that's their. They kind could of be on the Moonscar on yeah. the Moonscar Europe tour, yeah. fucking about. Like, yeah, they remind me of all those stupid bands that annoyingly I would have seen when I was thirteen, fourteen. I mean, but one yeah, of no. them does a Mooney. They, they get all their get their cocks their out, out at one point. There's one Jump bit where down. they say, "Oh, what, there's a girl that keeps getting interviewed throughout this <laughs> throughout this thing who just like really likes hardcore." Yeah. And she's as tough as the boys. She says, oh, the thing is, I just really love them because they always dress up in outfits. And I'm like, well, that's not really... A, that's not really a reason to love a band. Yeah. But one of them, she says they dressed up as Easy e And I was just like, <laughs> I hope they didn't. If, <laughs> yeah, none of them are allowed I to mean, do I mean, A, this is mid-90s, so I think Easy es already dead. Yeah. And, and if not, everyone knows he's got AIDS. So, I mean, neither of those things are good. And then on oh. top of that, if they dressed up as him in any way, yeah. I don't want to explore it. But anyway, yeah. I fucking hated these fucking douchebags. <laughs> they just seemed like such idiots. No, they were. They were obviously buffoons. But I like that there was proper idiots in, uh, for some reason, going along in this scene. Because <laughs> everyone else was so... Like, I don't yeah. agree with any of their humour. I don't agree that they were funny. I just like that there was someone in that scene making that music, taking the piss out of it, but also being on the same bill as all those bands. And played the Black and Blue Bowl... Only a couple of years ago. But I got the impression from the interview that they did in the mid-2000s that the, at the point that they were in this film that they weren't really a part of anything. They say something like, oh yeah, after that film... Because the guy who's made the film yeah. obviously wants to consider himself very important. Yeah. So he asks everybody, like, what, what did think? the film do yeah. to you? What did it do for you? And they said, oh, well, we got to know all of those bands and we started playing gigs with loads of New York hardcore oh, bands, which so we haven't really it. before. Mm. So they obviously did become that, don't yeah. get me wrong. But I don't know, I think they were another sort of, like, buncher in the suburbs. Yeah. But then, 
I mean, this is some really classy filmmaking. They go from no redeeming social value, pulling Moonies, to immediately 108, who yeah. are the most serious, proper, hardcore Harry Krishnas, dressed up in all the outfits, yep. playing music which is literally like this music Face melting. life and death to us like yeah. we are not messing around at all and it's such a weird change in tone for a documentary yeah. to do I fucking love 108 I really enjoyed them I don't know them before this yeah I just they're brilliant I think they're absolutely brilliant and again that's the sort of music that in the later part of the 90s was totally what I liked I suppose it was overly serious it's got to be said I'm going to play a band actually on the old <laughs> on the old song which kind of fit into this it's oh, like okay. it w- wasn't really metallic it would certainly wasn't youth crew yeah definitely wasn't old school it was super serious yeah. it was hardcore of some sort it didn't sound like earth crisis on the one hand which had gone like way more metal yeah but it i don't know like Just screaming super, super heavy screaming, screaming punk. Something. i don't know yeah yeah. And yeah uh, sorry, I, it was a transcendental jam. Oh, it was, of course. Sorry, it was. remember yes, that. Of course. I don't know if they all were. <laughs> uh, but the interesting thing about 108 is when they get caught up with, two of them are still Harry Krishnas, yeah. they're, but they're much less serious about themselves. Yeah. One of the things we haven't even mentioned once, which is crazy considering who we're talking about, is how seriously everybody in this scene takes themselves, yeah. apart from no redeeming value. Yeah. Like their interviews are just so serious. And I feel like that definitely went through like the 90s, the late 90s hardcore scene was so serious. So serious. But by the time you caught up with 108 in 2005, they're like, yeah, we're still Harry Krishnas, but like we're parents now. Yeah. We don't play so much. And like we weren't really trying to force people to become Harry Krishnas. We were just kind of trying to get this message out. It was out. just we were learning as we go along. We never yeah. preached. We were just, exp- you know, we were exploring. That's but what that's, we were doing. They totally preached. And the reason yeah. they were so cool was probably because they were preaching. So yeah. Much. And one of them like went off and was just like, yeah, so I abandoned the band because I needed to do the Harry Krishna thing. And then I realised. And then I was like, I became Big Cheese, became the president of the temple. Yeah. And then I was like. I kind of got into this just to, like, see God. Straight up see God. And I haven't done that. And it's taking a lot of my time. So now I've got the worst so now... dreadlocks <laughs> no, in the I don't entire do anything. world. This guy's dreadlocks. If we can... We'll try and share a picture. I thought he had a wig on. It is the most... They're, like, comedy dread. It's as if someone has honestly... It's like when Hastings had a reggae festival, <laughs> right? And Hastings isn't... As a generally, this is a bit harsh, maybe, but it's not like necessarily the most multicultural. I think it's fair to say understanding place. Yeah, and they we do were claim driving. Like reggae. We oh. were driving out of town when the Hastings Reggae Festival was coming on, and there was a guy walking back towards the festival. Yeah. He had a Bob Marley T-shirt on, a pair Rest of shorts, I think, with like the Jamaican flag on them. He'd just gone all out, but he, he had every every comedy item. But he had a wig, and he was obviously wearing it. For genuine reasons, but he had like what was a comedy Rastafarian wig, yeah, and it looked exactly like this man's actual hair. Yeah, it was strange. It's insane. It this guy's strange. hair is insane. Um, we've know, gone on for way life. too long. We need to. We need to finish. Have you got any thoughts about the nineties stuff generally? I didn't really know a huge amount about New York hardcore to start with. Um, so my only knowledge of it was probably the eighties eighties stuff and then the nineties metallic stuff, like the early. Like yeah. biohazard, pretty yeah, much. Yeah. Sorry, we haven't mentioned Sick of It All, which is pretty much the ones that continue it on. Yeah. So Sick of It All were a band that I saw having not been to a gig in years. This was like in my twenties, like between the ages of like fifteen and whatever. I hadn't been to a gig in so long. 
And yeah, for some reason, I went to see Sick of All in about 2013, 2012. And yeah, it was, and it was the first gig I went, I've been, you know, carried on going to gigs ever since then, but it was the first time I'd seen anyone in ages. And I, yeah, I'd kind of forgotten that hardcore existed in any any realms. So yeah, as much as I don't really listen to Sick of All much, I, I do uh, respect them for getting me back into gigs. I really like Sick of It All, and I've yeah. always really liked Sick of It All. They never necessarily stood out that much, but they yeah, they, I mean, they're a great band, and they definitely have just, they've never, they're a bit like Bad Religion. They've sort of made the same album over yeah. and again, but they do it really well, like yeah. what they do. I did like the fact that uh, the bass player from Sick of It All, when he was interviewed, I think in that first film, said that the reason that he really loves hardcore is because it's music that's not pretentious. And we just, it was right at the end of the film, and we just watched all these people being <laughs> incredibly pretentious, but just in a sort of street, you know, like, yeah. it's a weird, I, I suppose pretentious means different things depending on who you're talking well, about, but I think it's very pretentious to just talk about how tough you are for ages. Yeah, 100%. <laughs> and also, coming straight after the bit where Youth of Today have been like, yeah, so the scene didn't die, but it did kind of stop because of all the cliqueiness and yeah. the pretentiousness. Yeah, yeah. But the one band that carries it on is sick of it all, yeah. and they're like, we love it because it's not pretentious, like, <laughs> Dude, did you just miss all of that last bit? <laughs> and talking about pretension, this is one other note that I made from the from the second film, is that so many of them insist on being interviewed without their tops on. Oh, gotcha. And there's no reason. It's not like they've just got off stage or anything. They're literally just sitting in their house. Yeah. But they've taken the fucking tops off. But the thing I love about the 90s is the way that they have to do with that in the 90s, because they've got these clip-on microphones, is that they've all got fucking Krishna necklaces yeah. on. So the microphones are just stuck on their Krishna necklaces so that they can show up there. <laughs> Some of them haven't even got that big muscles. Some of them are tubby. Some of them are tubbies and they're very still, scrawny. They're still insisting on... Oh, God, we haven't even talked about... Uh, what the fuck's his name from the Cro-Mags? Is it Harley or Harvey? Maybe we shouldn't, because I'm going to have to play with him soon. Yeah, maybe we won't mention him, <laughs> but yeah, he's very proud of himself. But let's not talk about him too much, but he's he's got a face that's Pride, something. pride is maybe... There we go. Let's get into, let's get into a bit more, because we're going to have to finish this soon. Yeah. Pride is a very interesting thing in New York hardcore. It's something that they talk about an awful lot. And it's another thing that I feel like there's a bit of cosplay going on. There's a little bit of just like, this is a word that I know, so I'm just going to attach it to things. Like people talk about being proud of like such random things. And I don't know if it's a New York thing. Like people are like proud of their subway trains in New York. (laughs) You know, they're proud of their street. They're proud of like the car that they drove when they were 18. Pride (laughs) is like this bizarre concept to them that doesn't seem to mean what pride actually means (laughs) and if you listen to the lyrics in new york like pride and being proud is something that comes up an awful lot in these things pride is this concept to them that means something so bizarre that i don't understand and i can't work out what it is it is this bravado buffoonery that i don't understand how can you feel anything about your subway system (laughs) there's one guy that's got the sub he's in his house and he's got the subway system poster behind him on the wall (laughs) like stuck in his house that's the art that is the art that he's got in his in his flat (laughs) the subway system he's proud (laughs) but pride is a very strange thing is a strange is a strange well my general uh, takeaways was that I really enjoyed certain bands and I really enjoyed certain bands philosophies but I wouldn't say that they were the overarching long lasting memory of New York Hardcore i.e. I really like Youth of Today and everything they did I like Biohazard <laughs> and I quite we like really all that. talked about Biohazard I, uh, I quite like all the metallic uh, 
nonsense side of things. I really like Biohazard when they're proud. <laughs> Biohazard are so proud. And they're so proud. <laughs> and they're proud about some really nonsense things. How good they are at walking down the street. He's really proud of how many blocks it yeah. is between him and the subway. That's another example. Yeah. He, does, he does that, doesn't he? He could do it every day. He could do every it every fucking, fucking day. <laughs> he can walk 12 blocks every day. Mate, I can he walk stands to, in the rain I when can he's walk waiting for the, his train. I can walk to the seafront and have some chips every yeah. fucking day too. But, and I know it's all tongue-in-cheek, but I fucking really enjoy it. And and it's and I, I feel like they can't possibly be as proud as they sound, but good on them. But yeah, no, all the Youth of Today stuff is just um, wonderful. And I love everything that they were kind of trying to do and trying to say. Everything else around it, it, with a pinch of salt, I can enjoy it. I can never understand the dancing. I'll never understand how you can preach being nice to everyone but humans and then punch humans in the face. It's just weird. But... I think it makes sense for some of the later bands because even the straight edges, there was a lot of, like... There was a lot of celebration of hate in the later era. Oh, especially like yeah. in like Victory Records late nineties era, that Earth Crisis thing, like and into like hate breed, I suppose is like the obvious where where this went. There was a lot of people talking about like I'm angry and I hate people, yeah. and I don't think there's anything wrong. You know, that's we all hate people. Like it's one thing to talk about it, but it is weird. There is a disconnect. Yeah, there is definitely a disconnect between some of this stuff. But you have also got to pull this stuff apart a little bit because like the youth crew stuff which is the stuff that had the positive message. Yeah. That was where it was like posy. That's yeah. where posy came And from. I didn't actually even know that existed until I was listening to the Youth of Today album in the car. Mm. And I was like, God, he's just singing about lovely things. Yeah, yeah. I mean, he's sounding fucking mental doing it, but like, isn't this lovely? But I do think that for the most part, those posy youth crew bands, say what you want about that attitude, they were quite genuine. They weren't the ones who were saying also beat people up. No. Like, and they weren't, they weren't violent. And like I say, so many of them were involved with like Krishna and stuff. I suppose it, it, it didn't go hand in hand, but so there is a, sometimes you can lump everything. We probably do this with a lot of stuff. I definitely do this with a lot of stuff. You say like New York hardcore and you lump the whole lot in and you say, how can it be that they're really posy, but they also all beat each other up. But actually in reality, although there is (laughs) no question, there is definitely some confusion about it. I think that that happens now with people that think that they're doing the New York hardcore thing. Yeah. So those things are separate. If you go back in history and you look and you say, yeah, yeah. there's this positive message from this group of people. Yeah. There's this hateful message from this group of people. There's this spiritual message from this group of people. There's all these different messages. But what happens is now, I think, with for some people, is they don't look into it enough. Yeah. So a lot of the bands who are around now who are influenced by this stuff are like, yeah, we're a posy band, but fuck shit up. Yeah. And it's like... Yeah, yeah, yeah. But, but what you've done there is you've got confused. About, yeah. It's like you've found two bands that sound similar and come from a similar place but have completely different messages yeah but you've just figured oh well my message must just be a mixture of these two yeah, things yeah. even if they don't sit together and when going back to the very start of this when we were talking about cosplaying things yeah. of course if you cosplay things there's no emotional attachment yeah it's one of the problems with I think the modern world yeah everybody is like come from. cosplaying these ideas that they have a vague idea about but they don't really know mm. and of course we weren't we have a very vague idea of New York hardcore. I mean, we weren't there. You we're know. not old enough. So, yeah we're, yeah, we're also trying to pick it apart. But but it's like if you go into it with... If you go into it with a bit of pride in yourself, yeah. right? And you go into it thinking that you're right and you'll take yourself really seriously, but you get it a bit wrong, that's what I think a lot of hardcore that came in... The, and, and music influenced by hardcore as well 
Because like new metal was influenced mm-hmm. by this shit. Mm-hmm. You know, a lot of really shit problematic music came out of hardcore. Maybe not specifically New York. Yeah. And I think that it was a case of doing almost what we've done. I think I, I, I'm just thinking back over the conversation we've just had, and I sort of regret it a bit because what we've sort of done is we've taken all of these different elements of this one musical scene, and we've we've talked about them like they're one thing. And I think yeah. that that's what a lot of people do now. But because think, they have no emotional connection yeah. to the thing itself. But I would say that in doing this, I've figured, I've found out that it isn't all one thing. Yeah, and I think yeah. you're right. You have to do, you have to look at it properly. And I think we haven't discussed it as one thing at all. I think we've discussed the things we don't like as one thing. Because to be honest, it's all basically one bit of it that I don't really enjoy. But there is tons of different parts to this, and yeah. there's loads to enjoy about it. But you're right, the disconnect is strange. The band that I'm thinking of that was telling people to get to the fucking front and I'm gonna fucking let's go beat someone up. I'm pretty sure one of them had a Youth of Today t-shirt. Yeah, yeah, and I'm just like, y- yeah, now course. I know yeah, yeah, yeah. how stupid that is. Yeah, yeah. But you know, they're also 21 and they're just going, I like hardcore. I've got the, you know. And they've put it all together and just decided... But I hate to say thing. it, I'm going to be that fucking guy from the meme again who's chasing the girl the... down the thing asking her to name three Misfits And are you shouting at clouds or whatever? Yeah, 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 no, yeah, yeah no, probably. <laughs> which we are. But there is an element to which, like... And even if there's nothing wrong with this, in our culture now, there is an acceptance that you would wear a Metallica T-shirt and not have a clue who Metallica are, yeah. right? Now, I'm not saying that the boy in the band with the Youth of Today T-shirt had never heard Youth of Today, but he doesn't put the same... If I wear a band's T-shirt, it has to be someone I really like. Yeah, like, right? I agree with this, I, this yeah, band. Yeah, I want to be, like... I want to be proud of that yeah, T-shirt. I am represented by <laughs> yeah, this band totally. right now. Yeah, and, and I do sort of think that, like, there is an element within people maybe who are a bit younger than us whereby, actually, it doesn't really matter. Yeah. It doesn't this really is, this matter. This is the correct T-shirt it's to like, wear to this gig. To yeah, do. yeah, kind yeah. of. And, of course, as well, you're, there's a disconnect probably between that guy with the Youth of Today T-shirt and who might have been... Let's say he's the bass player. Yeah. And the and bass the player might have been it. this super posy guy. Yeah. And he's sitting there thinking, I wish my singer would stop telling people he was going to beat them up. <laughs> you know, like, there, there is, it's really yeah. complex. It is. Life is complex. New York Hardcore, you were more complicated than we realised. People should treat it that way and not just kick people in the head. But the ironic thing is that the people involved in it don't seem to know that it's more complicated than no. everybody else no. realised. Like, they're the ones who are making it complicated. Yeah. But they all fucking say the same six to ten sentences. Yeah. You interview any of these motherfuckers, they're going to say the same, one of the same... Proud, rote. legit, truth, <laughs> true faith. So, yeah. you know, there's no message. No. Let's play some music. Let's play some music. This is a song from a band that we have played before. Twice. I think we've played them twice this before. This is the first three times. This is, time. the this first is a slam dunk or Triple something. threat. No, it's not a triple threat. <laughs> but they do do many what things. What the fuck is up? What the fuck is up? <laughs> <laughs> no, this is the band that we're playing for the first time, for the third time. First time, for the third time. First, third time play. This band is called Des Board and the song is Panicle. They're a band from Argentina. They are fucking brilliant. Um, this is from their new EP, Todo Es Una Mierda. Pretty sure that's right. Yeah. <laughs> Available. Better better. It would have been better if you said it in Norfolk. Todo Es... No, I can't do it. <laughs> <laughs> Available now in the UK on cassette via Noise Merchant. And oh. quickly, if you listened to us on the Football, Beer and Punk Rock podcast. Oh, yeah. You will know that we picked this as our banger. Yeah. On there. Banger of the uh, week. Because we were asked to pick a banger of the week. And if you haven't listened to that, you should go and listen to it. Yeah, it's fucking cool. It is fucking cool. Siobhan tells a story about how she pooed in the church. No! (laughs) 
So if that doesn't sell it to you, I do not know what will. This is what you tell people that you've never met before who ask you to be on their podcast. I'm so sorry to you guys, but they're very, very, very nice people. And yeah, you should go check out their podcast. But in the meantime, we're going to play Desboard with Panico. This week's trashy movie for review is Surf Nazis Must Die from 1987. Sometime in the near future, a major earthquake will lay waste to the entire California coastline. From out of the rubble will rise a menace far more terrifying than the death and destruction. Surf Nazis. Who rules the beaches? Who rules the surfers? The beautiful beaches, once the crown jewels of California, are now ruled by ruthless gangs. Only one person is powerful enough, daring enough, brave enough to stop them. Only one person can ensure that surf Nazis must die. She's tough. I want to buy a gun. She's dangerous. She's all woman. She's Leroy's mama. And as long as she's alive, the surf Nazis must die. Taste some of mama's home cooking, Ada. See the film that is creating a tidal wave of action all over the world. See, surf Nazis must die. Set in a futuristic California hellhole in which an apocalyptic natural disaster has left the iconic Baywatch perfect beaches of Malibu and Venice as ganglands, various parties battle with one another in an attempt to control the sand and sea of this former West Coast paradise. Uh, where do you want to start? Well, let's start by the fact that we're reviewing this film because it stars Dukey Flyswatter, although not listed as Dukey Flyswatter on no, this film. No, he's Michael Sonier in this. He is. Which did confuse me ever so slightly. Dukey Flyswatter is his real name. Michael Sonier is his stage name. Of course, clearly. of course. Um, so we thought we would review that to celebrate this documentary that we've already mentioned. So yes. again, go and support that. Go and support it. We do like Spoiler this alert, this Spoiler. is probably my second favourite film of all time. And I don't know if we'll ever get to reviewing your favourite. It is a beautiful film. It was released by Troma. It's not a Troma film itself, though. Uh, and we'll go into Troma in another future episode. Possibly. I think we're going to do a Troma episode yeah. at some point. And so that possibly gives you an indication of the style of this film. It's very trash. It's very silly. It it's, very, <laughs> it's very deliberately trash. Like, I don't know. 
from the very beginning, there's people with swastikas all over their faces and all over their clothes. There's, so it's gonna. Um, they are the baddies, though. I mean, yeah. there is problematic aspects to this, yeah. which maybe we'll get to. But um, it's not made by trauma. Uh, it's made by someone else, and so I'm not sure that I would totally agree with you that it's like a classic trauma film. It no, is, well, I didn't say it was a classic trauma film. I said if you like trauma, no, but that's what I'm sorry. That's the... what I'm trying. In fact, oh, okay. it, it is a classic trauma film because it's like one of the big ones. But I don't think that it's actually that similar in style. Okay, but I think that I view this film in a slightly delusional way, <laughs> in as much as I consider it to be extremely atmospheric and very beautiful. Um, I don't know that anybody else would necessarily <laughs> completely agree with that. If we can just uh, be very, very clear on Dave's idea of uh, atmospheric and beautiful, it must be raining. And if it's not raining, if it can be in some kind of post-apocalyptic wasteland, then it's um, atmospheric and beautiful. And this is post an earthquake that has ruined the beach. Yeah. So I feel like, I mean, if it's got a lot of concrete... <laughs> poor graffiti on the wall you're ruining all my points no but this is this is this is what you consider atmospheric the picture on the back is a man in the dusk and you can barely make out that he's holding a surfboard and I think you really enjoy this uh, that's one of the most beautiful images I've ever seen <laughs> no question I have a long history with this film and I fucking love it so let's start with you Siobhan what did you like about Servant? Or what did you dislike also about oh, Servant versus um, I'm not sure what I disliked because I did really, 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 really enjoy this film. I love that there's gang warfare. It was very trying to be the Warriors at some point and all of the gangs are hilarious. There's someone who is covered in paint splattered clothing who is very serious but has the best kind of delivery of lines and is just so funny yeah the um, the, the gangs are they're not quite the warriors because they obviously didn't have enough people no so they're only three he, in each one yeah but um there's like some surfer dudes yeah there's some skater kids who seem to have their sort of some sort of sexy mother along with them yeah there's some kung fu guys yeah uh, there's like some biker people that they aren't really a gang as such but they sort of come along for the ride and then later on there seems to be a gang of fishermen which I think they were, getting oh, yeah. a, they were a bit desperate for ideas oh, yeah, of course. but the ones you're talking about I wasn't really sure exactly what they were they were just like sort of surf looking guys but with I paint on them. I think they're called blow curl and dry because I think they they're are. maybe meant to be hairdressers. Oh interesting maybe. I don't know it's not clear they have nice hair but it's not obvious <laughs> I think the concept of it is absolutely hilarious because at first you're like what the fuck does surf Nazis must die really mean and the guy who made it, and I think it is quite clear, is it's about, in California, people getting really um, funny about who surfs on which bit of the beach. And so the director was just like, I called them surf Nazis, like, because they were trying to take over their little space. And so it is about, literally, a group of people that are actual Nazis yeah. trying to control the beach. And I just think that's fucking genius and actually really hilarious and really clever. And I think it sets up for... You couldn't really say it had a political message as such, but it does set up a really good group of baddies for... The original idea for this film was that there was a, a Mama Washington character who is a sort of elderly black lady yeah. whose son is killed, and so she goes on a rampage. By the Nazis. Yes. Well, it turns, turns out by up. the Nazi, but the original what I mean is the original idea was all oh. about her. Because I always think, you know, surf Nazis is such a cool idea... I just presume that would be the first idea of the film. But the original version of this film actually wasn't necessarily the Nazis weren't the bad guys. It was just like there were some bad guys. Yeah. But the idea that they had was that there was just this really unusual kind of action star. Yeah. I suppose, sort of an overweight, elderly black lady yeah. on a motorbike with a gun yeah. <laughs> who was going to like reap revenge. 
And um, she doesn't play a huge role until like later on in the film. Yeah. So I remember the first time I ever watched this, I was quite taken aback when she yeah. became a vigilante in yeah, a way. Yeah, yeah. Even though watching it now, it's obvious that they're building up to that. It is, but I like how little they pay it attention. Yeah. The shots are more meaningful. Like, it's to the point. Like, she gets moved into the residential home and within minutes she's started a gambling ring and she's smoking. Yeah. And, and she's awesome, by the way. Then she buys a gun and that scene's very short. So it's all a bit more to the point, which I think makes it more, like, stand out. Yeah. Um, but I think you're right. It is weird because doesn't, she doesn't really feature for ages. But I think that, in a way, that's what makes it such a good film. It's, like, two really fucking great ideas. Yeah. Like, this one, this unusual vigilante story yeah. that you've never seen before and probably never seen again yeah i don't think i've ever seen it. apart from rabbit grannies it's like troma does this a lot <laughs> yeah. i've never really seen like an elderly person as the kind of as the person to bring the violence yeah um <laughs> but also then you come up with this idea of these fucking surf nazis that are running gangs and this yeah. sort of warrior style and the fact that it's set on the beach and everything oh, like it's just brilliant. so and the beach is falling apart like such a cool setting it, it is so wonderful i think um as with loads of these films the actors and actresses are probably not doing a lot of acting prior to this. <laughs> yeah, I think some it's of them fair went to on say. To other things, some yeah. of them did, yeah. yeah. But like, Mama Washington was in Naked Gun, one go. and two. <laughs> but I feel like there's there's a certain delivery style to people who have just that turn up in these films that I really enjoy. Sometimes it's really stilted. But it's, it's kind of that typical, just overact. You can't act, yeah. just overact. Everything um, is really serious. Yeah. Everything... You can't handle the power! Very <laughs> <Yeah, laughs> that. No one wants to slam dance! Yeah. That was, oh, so brilliant. But yeah, but then it does mean that the ones who can act are really stand out. So the one in that gang who I mentioned earlier, Blow, Curl or Dry or whatever his name was with the nice hair, he's really good. So he kind of stands out as really like intense and severe just because he actually can deliver a line. Um, Adolf doesn't do his lines too well, but he's got a wonderful style about him. Yeah. And then Juki Flyswatter like can act. And so his delivery of lines is fucking beautiful. Um, I'm not just saying that because there's a documentary about him soon, but like <laughs> legit, like he stands out as actually oh, no, really I mean, good. At yeah. It. He shines. Definitely. Yeah. I mean, I, I feel like quite a lot of people in this shine pretty well actually, but he, he out of the Nazis, he really, oh, he's he really shines. Yeah, you you never forget him, and he's called... and he's quite an unusual presence, like generally, just yeah. in all of his films. And so I think I'd say this about him just as a person, but he's a very yeah, he's a very unusual presence, and as a result, like I even before I knew who he was, he always really stood out. Whenever I caught him in a film, and definitely this part, yeah, he was the person that I remembered. He's also called Mengele. We should probably dwell on the fact that one's called Adolf. Yeah. One's called Mengele. One's called Eva. I think yeah. there's one called Brutus. There They're is, all, um... But one of them's called Smeg, so they, <laughs> don't, they don't stick with it entirely. Also, Adolf's real name is Ricky Johnson because Smeg's mother reveals the name when she learns. No, his that is so out. brilliant. Where where he says where he says no, he's like being really serious yeah. about how he's got to go and join his gang on the beach, and she goes, Adolf. Is that what that snotty Ricky Johnson calls himself now? <laughs> Such a brilliant line. <laughs> it is so beautiful. The script doesn't have many bangers of lines. It's just all really nice. Like, yeah, I don't know, yeah. like, nothing's, like, standout hilarious. Um, there was a woman that is talking to someone else, and she describes herself. She goes, 
I'm his personal bitch. And I was like, oh, I don't like this. And she goes, and you do well to get yourself a more competent cunt. And I was like, what the fuck? (laughs) Just referencing their girlfriends or something. And it was just awful. And I was like, I don't agree with the sentiment, but competent cunt is probably going to be my new name when I'm at work. Competent cunt. I'm going to put it, it It doesn't say deputy ward manager anymore. It's going to say competent cunt. Yeah, probably. Competent (laughs) cunt. But yeah, um, how about yourself? I know you enjoy this film a lot. I mean, I don't know where to start, really, to be honest. I just think it's fucking brilliant. But the things that really stand out to me, and I must have watched this film, I reckon, double figures at this point in my life. The soundtrack... Oh, that music is beautiful. I think one of my favourite film soundtracks of all time, genuinely. Oh, it's all original, just someone doing synth music. I don't even know how they make it, because it is synth. It's definitely synth music, but there's some, like... And it might be synthesised guitar. There's some really unusual sounding, sort of surfy, but in a completely like futuristic surf guitar sound. Yeah. Some of these things. That is so effective. And the whole thing is so incredibly atmospheric. And I think that that is one of the reasons, between that and like the setting, it's one of the reasons why this film that is obviously kind of like trash. Yeah. And the story is obviously like really exploitative. It's one of the reasons why it stands out in comparison to almost everything like it. Yeah. I think because it's just, it does provide this like incredible atmosphere. Yeah. At all times. And it's all that synth. I mean, there is a, you can get the soundtrack on, on record. And I never have because they keep releasing it on vinyl and it's like super expensive and stuff. Yeah. But um, I know that on YouTube there is a video of the whole thing. So I'll just, I'll put that on the YouTube playlist oh, as well. Nice. And like, I would really, even if you're not interested in trash movies at all, I think the soundtrack is just fucking it's a perfect. Beautiful bit of synth. It, it really is. And then, yeah, all of the settings is the other thing that I just love so much. I mean, one thing for me, like when I watch movies, I think that the feel of the movie is way more important to me than like the plot. Yeah. Or that like acting or whatever. And so sometimes, and we've talked about films like this before, like sometimes when they just get something right. It doesn't really matter if the plot is just like standard or... And this one isn't, but if it was, you know, if it's just sort of like there's a goodie and a baddie and then in the end the goodie wins, that's that's fine. But if you, if everything around that is really nice, that's what I tend to really like. And I think that in this film, like, the settings are just so beautiful. It's like somewhere that I just want to be all the time. And, and they're all on the beach, very Californian beaches, but they're, like, definitely, like, early to mid-80s Californian beaches where they're all really run down. Yeah fucking graffiti everywhere there's loads of like really strange structures that they managed to find and most of them they appear to be on the beach itself but i would guess that some of them aren't and they probably yeah. went to other areas and stuff it's almost like every single shot apart from the old people's home which is sort of boring every shot in this fucking film they go to a bar and it's super cool and super weird all the stuff on the beaches there's just like like i say there's graffiti everywhere but it's not just graffiti there's like weird weathered art that was obviously wasn't graffiti was actually proper art and stuff that's all sort of fallen apart there's these structures that are like one of them's like a chinese temple yeah but it's just made of stone it's like a bandstand sort of thing yeah and it's really weird and there's this great big like semi-circular roof thing that one of them's always sitting on you can never well, yeah, really like a see big concrete jut out yeah thing. you can't really see what it actually is because they ne- the shot is it always too a, close um, up it might have been like a, a, a sea barrier yeah. thing, but it's massive but it's just oh 
I, yeah, it's just all of those things are like so. Everything's like really sun kissed. It's really weathered. There's this massive like air hanger thing that's like been totally yeah. burnt out, and it's got loads of holes in the ceiling. And so the sun is coming through all of those holes, and it's almost like film noir or something. Yeah. And the shots are just so beautiful. And that's where um, Dukey Flyswatter is, and he's Creates like, all his weapons. yeah, he's like making weapons in there, and he makes all of these weird fucking weapons in there. But they ha- they do loads of these. Like when people go in there, there's definitely one scene where they do this long shot, and you can hear them talking, but it's like just two shadows of figures mm. talking to each other. But the shot itself is just so, like I say, it's it's like fucking film noir. It's so beautiful, and there's loads of like they get put the dry ice on and all that yeah. shit. So it just gives it a bit of a nice look. But oh god, it's so cool. And there's loads of like crazy industrial stuff. Yeah, there's loads of like pumping. I don't I know what like you call oil them. Pumps, yeah. I guess. And some of them are on the beach, and then some of them I think they make look like they're on the beach, but yeah. actually probably aren't. I mean, I really like old weathered industrial stuff as well. Yeah, <laughs> so, I know. It's kind of like it's it ticks all the boxes for me. And the last scene where Mama Washington is like chasing Adolf to kill him. Yeah. Um, they go through this weird like scrapyard that definitely was just real. Because, of course, all of this stuff is supposed to be apocalyptic or at least yeah. slightly apocalyptic. Like, Yeah, it's supposed to it, an earthquake yeah, so that's ruined everything. But it's like, I mean, it's not like it's 100 years in the future. Oh, it's, it's in, only the, a few. Some, in, the, in the very near future or something. Oh, my God. Somewhere that in the near first, future. That first shot, which yeah. is literally just, yeah, it just says sometime in the near future, dot, 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 in this, like, crazy, beautiful, beautiful well, 80s, the, like, yeah. The, yeah, the, I think it's in the surf Nazis writing, almost. I mean, that... Starting a film with that, I'm like, I want to, I want to find out what's happened in the near future here. But anyway, uh, at the very end, they're running through these like massive vats that look like you could almost like like people could stand in them, like these ginormous things. I don't know what they are, and the scrapyard looks really beaten and stuff. And like I say, so it sort of looks apocalyptic, but you know that actually they just went to these places and they looked apocalyptic. Yeah, and I just so wish that. California still look like that and I just want to go to all of these places but I know that they're all going to have been like painted and gentrified and stuff god damn it this is a difficult thing to say but the van that they drive around in is so fucking cool but the reason it's a difficult thing to say is because it's got loads of swastikas on it apart from the swastikas apart from the swastikas it's got like it's just been like (laughs) it just looks like a a punk band's van I suppose and it's got a shark's face painted on the front with a big open mouth and teeth and it's got a shark fin on the roof but other than that the rest of it is just like graffiti over graffiti over graffiti just like a mess oh it's so cool it's gorgeous so yeah I mean I just fucking love it Uh, Dukey Flyswatter He's brilliant in this, like we've he's already wonderful. said. Oh, I was going to say, he's very handsome in it as well. <laughs> Which, bless his heart, like, I, uh, yeah. If you saw him now, bless his cottons, he looked like a bit, he actually looked like a little bit of a uh, well, heart throb of a man. He was a handsome film. man, but in a way that makes what he in did with Haunted way. Garage, so we're going to, we're going off on one now again. Yeah. But like, he did this thing where he used to pull his the bottom uh, beneath of his eyes out oh. all the time. So he had this thing, and they, he obviously had like, his skin was a bit, Pulley. <laughs> How to describe it? Bit loose. But if you look at him, even when he was in his so slightly later on from this, not that much long, like in the nineties. So, yeah. So when he's probably in his thirties, I don't even know. He'd like underneath his eyes were like it's almost like scar tissue oh, because wow. he used to just he do this thing where so he'd much. pull him pull it so much, and like oh. it was all a part of his act, and it was definitely a part of like what Haunted Garage was about. There's loads of stuff where they say like this is actually our lifestyle. I know we yeah. just look like weirdos who are just dressing up. I mean, he's got not... vampire teeth now. Yeah, he? yeah, he's just a weird dude. I, I like him. fucking love weird dudes. I love him. 
love him. And and like I say, so his energy in this is very strange. He's got a couple of really nice bits. He makes this thing called a switchboard. (laughs) And it's like basically a surfboard, but it's it's got a switchblade on the front, front, which like pops out. And it's a really cool scene where he kind of like shows it to Adolf and he's like (laughs) impressed by it. But when he actually has to use this thing in a fight, (laughs) it's really cumbersome. I've written exactly that. He's got this massive... He uses his switchboard as a weapon. Arrow, cumbersome. Yeah, there you go. I mean, literally, he's just holding this massive surfboard. Yeah, and trying to and he's trying to sort of stab this other gang member with it, but he can't really move it properly. And they, you know, the fight choreography is obviously from a low budget film anyway, so they're just fucking about really. But I really like that, and and that's the point where he says, "What? No one wants to slam dance." That's really fucking cool. There's a few bits where they go and they sort of you see the Nazis like. Round the Chilling round the campfire, out. like you know, eating weird food and doing all this weird shit. And there's one point where, um, for some reason, I think it's Ava says, "What was your worst ever moment?" And they all answer turn by turn. And it goes to Juki, and he just looks at them and he just goes, "Oh, they're all bad, man." <laughs> <laughs> I just thought, I, I don't know why, I just that really touched it's beautiful. me. It was a really nice thing. Um, I think that the story is actually really a one of a kind. Yeah. I, I don't think it definitely like it wouldn't be made today. There's not it isn't problematic in a, of itself, but you definitely wouldn't call your film Surf Nazis Must <laughs> Die in twenty twenty two. So in a way like it, that is a really cool title for a movie. I think it's a fucking you know, excellent the, just, title. Just the fact that it might have the word Nazi in it doesn't mean it's not really super cool because yeah. it's not you know they're not celebrating oh they're not celebrating they're the, at they're all the, they're the bad guys and it literally says they must die like i do think the nazis characters in this despite being nazis are really cool as in their fashion apart from the swastikas well, their fashions are all really super cool their van is cool that where they live is really cool well, yeah, like they do it's that almost 80s like, punk thing that's yeah. just fucking, they just look amazing it's almost what the lost boys ripped off yeah. Later on. And I love The Lost Boys, but I mean, The Lost Boys is obviously like a corporatized version of something like this. And, yeah. and, and The Warriors. I'm sure they didn't even watch Surf Nazis Must Die before they made Lost Boys. But I just fucking love it. Rate it. 9.95 out of I, 10. I know the 10 out of 10. We'll get there one day. <laughs> yeah, I'm going to 9. It's absolutely brilliant. It's beautiful. It's a beautiful thing. So everybody watched... Can I just say, though, we rate it a 9 and a 9.95. IMDb, 3.7. Get your fucking act together, world. You've got it wrong. I think there might be a worse one than that. When you bring it up on Google, one of them, I think, is like 1 out of 10. Yeah, that is disgusting. And I do... This is one of the reasons why I bring up its title. I do wonder whether there's loads of people that have given it like naught out or whatever whatever yeah, the lowest like thing is on IMDb. They were like, what? They've used Nazi in the, in the title and then given it a 1 out of 10. I mean, it has been named like the worst film of all time by film critics and stuff like that. It blows my mind. I do not understand. I mean, we have they not seen Penis Shark or whatever we've been <laughs> Dick watching? Shark. Dick Shark. I mean, in comparison, that is unquestionably better. Yeah. But I mean, it's not going to be everyone's cup of tea. I can appreciate that, but I can't see how this can be worse. Like, have a worse score. Yeah. Than the vast majority of films. Almost every other film. <laughs> That's disgusting. Watch Surf Nazis Must Die. And also listen to. End of a Century Party, which is my old band for this episode. I said it was kind of a little... It's not really like 108. Okay. This is the band I was, I was referring to before, but it's very screamy and it's very <laughs> like... I don't know. You tell me what... Chamsetroses at gmail.com. You tell me what genre this is. This band uh, were around in the late 90s um, and they were great. They were part of this sort of emo violence. I suppose that's maybe that's what you'd call it. Ah. But it's a very that's a very specific scene that only... 
covers about five different bands. I don't even so really even know what it is yet. No, it isn't anything. It's just something that they used. This song is from an album of the same name. Okay. And the song is called Isn't It Perfectly Fucking Delightful to Be So Goddamn Certain? of this episode of Breakfast Punks thank you so very 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 much for listening to us all this time as always please do follow us on Instagram at Breakfast Punks Podcast um, the YouTube channel subscribe to it Breakfast Punks Podcast and there's going to be tons of things on there as every episode Dave puts together a very nice playlist of things you must go look at it even just for the public access TV clip of these beautiful boys and the the garage it's fucking brilliant. yeah we like potato chips you can't just have one yeah I can't none of us can describe how he does it and I promise you it's I don't know I think it's worth it he's the best thing I've ever seen as always email us at shamsityroasters.gmail.com if you've got any feedback anything you'd like to say anything you'd like us to cover if you've got a band that you'd like us to play we do are we've got lots and lots of people asking us these things so we are slowly but surely getting through all of the requests we have and also we have a Patreon that you can sign up to and get an extra episode each month. Um, so thank you very, very, very much for everyone who is already doing that. And uh, we appreciate it very much. And if you are listening to this podcast on your way to Manchester Punk Festival, because I think it comes out the day that probably everyone's travelling. Yeah. So I'm just presuming that everybody is doing that. Uh, make sure you come and see us. Whoop, whoop. 2.30. At the sound bar. The sound sand, bar. Sand bar on the Friday. Yeah. We're going to be doing a live Breakfast Punks episode. Uh, we've got lovely things planned. Yeah. Uh, which we need to plan a bit more. <laughs> <laughs> but it's going to be really brilliant. It will be lovely to see loads of you there. Yes. And if uh, you listen to this afterwards, I hope we weren't a disaster and I hope you enjoyed it. Uh, well, we <laughs> might, we, depending on how it goes, the next episode of this podcast, we might share it. With you. We're if we've managed to record it, we're we'll not see. not 100% sure. Yeah, we're not making any guarantees. Yeah, though. we will see. We're going to finish with a song. Uh, this is someone else who we played not too long ago. This is Sniff. And uh, this is from his new EP, which is just called Another EP. We've just put it out through Toxic What's It. I, there were some glittery ones. Mm. Uh, sorry, we put it out on tape. And there were some glittery tapes. And I think they're sold out now. Oh. But uh, we do still have some tapes left. So go and pick up a copy of this because it's fucking brilliant. This song is called Confusion. We will see you in two weeks, unless you're going to Manchester Punk Fest. In which case, we'll see you in a bit. Whoop, whoop! Shaking with fear, I'll be a 
show that you love to hate, and we hate to be loved. This is the true nasty boys of public access, or any access for that matter. This is Dino and Rocco's Back Alley. That's right, we're like potato chips. You can't just eat one. And that goes for all you belly aches and chronic complainers who called us and the studio complaining that you were offended. Yeah, if you, I mean, if you don't like what you hear or what you see, you can turn it off. Go on. Come, Come on, on, turn it off. Go ahead. Can't. You can't. see, 